Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road and coach Jonathan Lee. We have a different crew unprecedented crew with us here today. I don't think we've ever had this mix before. We have Ivy Audrain from trainer road and also the hand uh, or hand up gloves, the black bibs. What? I don't know if I completely botched that <laughs> Ivy. Sorry. How are you? Hand, good hand up plus the black bibs racing. Awesome. You'll Got get close. it. Yeah, we'll get it. <laughs> uh, we have our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And then if you're playing the, the bingo or drinking game, get ready to put down a lot of things or, or yeah, I guess put down a lot of things out of the way. We also have Santa Cruz Racing's Keegan Swenson. What's up, Keegan? Hey, guys. Stoked to have you. You're fresh off of your what we're going to talk about here uh, in a little bit, your White Rim FKT, uh, fastest known time on the White Rim Trail. So Yeah, still... Still paying for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, probably still recovering. Uh, before we get into that, though, just a handful of things. First of all, the Science of Getting Faster podcast. People are absolutely loving this podcast. We're working on new episodes right now as well that will be coming up uh, within a handful of weeks, which is exciting. So stay tuned to that. And <laughs> Nate just smirked. I think he was like, don't put a timeline check, on it. Right? No, check how much coffee I have. This is like, ooh, our Abin made me double, but this I hold as much as these. This mugs. is a lot. No, this is like a couple mugs. There's <laughs> two of these big dogs. <laughs> Nate's ready to rip right now. Going to be a By good the podcast, podcast guys. And it would be like science, <laughs> conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> Just going nuts. So uh, you can tune into the Science of Getting Faster podcast where Nate will probably have even more coffee in his system in those ones because he has to be extra sharp for those ones uh, where we go deep into the science with the researchers. We go directly to the researchers instead of just like, hey, there's a study and let's read the abstract and let's you know just take it at that. Instead, we talk to the researcher about the study itself and they give us a lot of information and a lot of context with it. And they are the ones that actually tell us, no, this is the takeaway that really matters here. These are what the things that we observed. It's really cool. <clears throat> and it allows us to really cut through a lot of noise that exists with, um, interpretation of scientific research. So tune into that one. It's awesome. It's, a. Uh, a great tutorial also on how to interpret that research, tons of fun and the successful athletes podcast. Uh, we're going to be having one with an athlete named Georgina out of Australia, and she has raced basically every sort of format. And she also races the Enduro world series now, and she uses train road to get faster. It's going to be a really cool episode. So, uh, stay tuned for that one next week. You can find out all, all those podcasts. You can just go to trainerroadcom slash podcast or search them on whichever podcast app you use, and you'll be able to find them. Uh, we do have some updates that we want to share though, Nate. Uh, first of all, probably the most exciting one is that we have new mobile apps. Uh, do. We, yeah. Do you want to go into, cause you and Pete and I are going to record something that's actually going to be a YouTube video. That's a bit more in depth and you can find that on our YouTube channel at the beginning of next week. But do you want to kind of go into some basics on those, Nate? Yes. I should have written these down cause I always forget, but it has <laughs> a new calendar or a full calendar support. So you can do everything like that, that you can do on the website. Um, it has a new power match feature, power match 2.0. We've talked about this before, but if you ever had problems with power match being laggy or overshooting, this fixes it all. It's really amazing. And there's a response responsiveness setting in there. Don't touch it unless you're have issues. That's really for trainers that are, uh, not one of the modern trainers, trainers that have like, <clears throat> that don't change very quickly. And you might have to have that setting. So basically play with it. If, uh, if you have issues. Uh, it also has train now in it, which is uh, super cool. That is the feature we talked about before that uses our adaptive training backend to suggest some workouts for you. And that's under workouts. There's a train now button right there mm -hmm. and everything else it is just improved. I mean, everything is, there's like a hundred other little things that I'm not going to mention, but just use yeah, it. And it's awesome. Ton. 
yeah, it's cleaner, faster. It's just, it's constant improvement. That's what it is. It's awesome. People are loving it, especially the power match feature. So, uh, download it. If you haven't already upload or update, if you have the apps and you haven't pushed the update yet, uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, and one of the things is it's kind of like parody now between Mac and windows and iOS and Android in terms of a lot of the features that you had on the Mac and windows apps. Now they're on the mobile apps, exciting stuff. Uh, also polarized training plans. Uh, we have launched them. Uh, we, so we went through quite a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of research. You also heard the podcast on this. Um, but we've also put in a whole lot of, uh, thought and, and tweaking and, and measuring and changing around with these plans to, to make sure that they fall within the traditional framework that gets wrapped into a polarized training with a capital P polarized training plan. Uh, so that's basically a minimum of 80, 20 (laughs) distribution time and intensity, uh, training intensity distribution in terms of time and zone. And, uh, many of them shoot North of that toward like the 90, 10 mark. And, uh, there's a whole blog or forum post that you can check out where we break down these plans and you can see the time training intensity distribution for each individual week. If you're a person that really wants to go after this stuff, you probably know what all that means and you're really interested in it. So you can check it out on the forum. And we also have a great blog post that breaks down polarized training very clearly. Sean wrote that, uh, one of our great copywriters and it's fantastic. So I'd recommend checking that out in parallel. So if you want polarized training, you can enable them. We're calling these plans still experimental. And the reason that we're calling them experimental is because we, we consider these plans to be in kind of like the, the beta phase of their production. And we plan to continually improve them as we get more data on them. So the way that you can access these plans, if you go to your trainer road account, you can go to your account on trainerroad.com and then you can go to early access and you'll see a little toggle switch that you can flip to have access to these experimental plans. And then you'll be able to find the polarized plans, put them on your calendar, uh, check them out. And there's tons of information about it once again on the forum and on the blog. So, uh, give that a Google and you'll be able to check it out. Uh, another update we should probably update on adaptive training. Uh, we added more people this week. Um, I believe that we added an additional hundred people in this week. Is that correct? Yep. Nate? 274. As of right now, there's one more PR to go in of a bug. And if that looks good, there'll be another 100 either today or early next week, depending on when that fix goes in. Pretty exciting. Uh, lots of people are liking it and getting faster with it. I know all, all of us here, you know, we've had access to it for a while and it's really cool. <laughs> so, and it makes us after you have it, you don't like you don't want it taken away because it's just so darn good. So it's really cool. Um, there's a couple of questions that I've seen like common questions and I want to answer them about adaptive training right now. Uh, take advantage of that. And Nate, maybe you can help me with answering these ones a little bit here. So, uh, one of them from Jeremy says, what should I do with my training plan in the meantime? Cause he said that he went and signed up for it, which you can do. So trainerroadcom slash AT, and you can sign up for adaptive training, uh, the beta. So what's the answer to that one? What would you say? Uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's, uh, Imagine four years from now, what we're doing today, hopefully we think is silly. And then four years from now, we think it's, I mean, from then it's silly. And then we keep not silly, but you know what I mean? Like you, there's always something new and an improvement happening in the future. That doesn't mean like if you go from 89 to 92, it doesn't mean like all your time at 89 is, is wasted. So mm-hmm. we, we have all this data that train road does work. We're trying to then, you know, hit the, the edge of the bell curve and improve that to get people faster. But I would not... Just the most important thing really is consistency. Do your training. Don't doubt it. I wouldn't do a breakneck thing. That's the worst, right? You, have you all seen that? 
when someone has like one bad workout, yes. they're like, I'm changing methodologies. <laughs> Keegan, have you seen that? I'm changing coaches. <laughs> I, I had a bad race. Everything's, everything's bad. So I got to change I it. I have no idea. Yeah. What you're <laughs> <about>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need to go keto. It's all broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all broken. Yeah. You fail one workout and you're like, bikes aren't meant for me. You just throw the whole thing out. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, another question from Mari. He said, I hope that's how you say your name. I apologize. If not it says for AT, I think I understand it will give you more of the rides. And he says in, in quotes, you need. So, and then he restates this. He says, can this be restated as the workouts you fail and indicate you struggled at within the post-ride survey? Will you be given more of those types of workouts? I've seen this as kind of like a common misunderstanding, basically asking like, Oh, so like if I failed that workout, AT will just keep giving me the sort of workouts that I failed. And we should clarify that. Cause that's yeah. not really the so case, right? Nate? There's two different parts. They're the workout profiles. So that's geared towards what kind of race you're doing. And that's where Chad says, if you're this type of racer, you need over unders. If this type of racer, you're going to be needing some two minute repeats, something like that. Um, so those are the profile, depending on the time of year you're going in, like it works with periodization and specificity going leading up to your race. Now, AT tries to figure out where inside of here is the appropriate dosage of those profiles for you. So if you're in an over under progression and you still have six weeks left in it in a specialty phase and you have issues with one of those, we'll try to make it so that AT should, should try to make it so that it doesn't, you know, you don't move ahead instead of doing mm -hmm. 12 by 15, you're doing like 15 by 15, 20 by 15. It's going to try to make you successful so that you get that, consistent stepped progressive approach, um, to get faster. So the, the, the kind of the question is, it doesn't say, Hey, Mari, you suck at three minute VO two max. I'm going to give you just only that, that that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> it's trying to go towards what your goals are rather than necessarily what your weaknesses are. Because if you're like a triathlete, you might not be a good sprinter. That has nothing to do with being a triathlete. Uh, and that wouldn't be part of the goals of the system of the adaptive training. Yeah. There's like a, a, in a, even a more literal take on that. A lot of the time people think like you failed that one workout. So you're just going to keep trying that one workout until you don't fail at it. And I've seen a few people ask like, is that what adaptive training is going to do for me? And no, that's not what it does at all. That's so. like Pete holding 400 Watts for an hour where he just <laughs> yeah. start, he'll hold it for when like four minutes and be like, uh, for those yeah. who don't know, that's what Pete used to do when he first started training uh, at Chad's actual CompuTrainer studio back in like 2007, 2006. Just hold yeah. 400 watts for an hour. That's it. And then he just would keep doing it. Yeah. Chad, uh, Chad asked him basically like, what's your threshold when you did, when he would enter in and he's like 400 and he's like, no, it's not. And he said, just make it say 400. <laughs> then he would just go as long as he could and then just explode at it over and over. So that's not the best training approach. And that's not what adaptive training will do for you. Uh, from Ryan, he says regarding the new adaptive training program, will there be any way to implement a race calendar to allow for adaptive training tapering or a specific night before race workouts or any sort of race day warmups? That's already built in. It's in, that's in the calendar right now. You put those races in A, B, C, uh, A's have the, like a big taper where B's have, uh, you can choose to either have openers or just like a day off before. And then C's are nothing just like a regular workout. But the, yeah. the issue with that is you can't do A's all the time because if you're always tapering, some people are always tapering, but if you're always tapering, <laughs> you can't, uh, you can never See. build fitness and you just, uh, you know, it just, it just keeps going down. You get the freshness comes and the fitness goes away. For sure. 
so if you want to sign up for adaptive training, the closed beta for that, we're adding people, as we mentioned, uh, regularly as we find and squash those, those bugs and, and get even more improvements. We're also spinning off a lot of the features that we, uh, get from that into production for everybody. So then, uh, little by little, everyone's benefiting from this as well, which is exciting. So you can do that at trainerroad.com slash AT. Uh, we need to excuse Chad from the podcast for probably a few weeks here because he's moving. Um, and as a result, he's got a lot of stuff that he's doing with his current house to get ready to go, then moving and then the new house. And so he's got a lot on his plate. So he'll probably be out for a handful of weeks here. Uh, also we have to excuse Amber because it's Amber's birthday today. And everybody that's listening to this should go on to Instagram and find Amber Malika. And then you should go on there and wish her a happy birthday. So please do that. If you haven't already, uh, that would be awesome. So uh, happy birthday, Amber. We appreciate you. Uh, with this now, let's get into some white rim talk. So Keegan, can for those that don't know, because uh, it's not like Alpe d'Huez or something where it's like an icon of the sport of cycling, but what is the the, the white rim? And then let's get into the, the whole approach of what you've done to get the record back. Yeah, so the white rim, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty old like Jeep trail that's, it goes around Canyonlands National <clears throat> Park, basically. I guess not around the whole thing, but it's around this white rim it actually is a white like cliff band that you basically ride around um i'm actually not sure where like why it became a thing or why it got made or so i was was actually wondering that when i was looking at these roads like there's literally roads like like carved into the cliff down the side of mesa so i don't know if it was for mining or they're like oh let's just be really cool to make this loop around this trail um someday this kid with bleached hair is going to try to ride his bike fast (laughs) on this yeah yeah it's it's a hundred mile loop um it's kind of a big big deal in like the utah like colorado like that region like everyone knows what it is like when i was a kid i always heard of the white room like oh that's a really big ride 100 miles and there's like there's sand and there's rocks and there's cliffs and it's beautiful and um so yeah it's kind of just this uh big amazing ride you can do in southern utah right outside moab um, mm-hmm. and yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, Payson kind of made a big switch and set the FKT and made like a kind of made a big deal of it and like show people what it is and like how cool it is. So, uh, you know, and what's FKT, uh, FKT is fastest known time. So it's FKTs are like more of a thing in the running world, I think from what I've gathered. Um, and it just recently became a, uh, a bike thing. <laughs> um, and then who is, uh, Payson, can you tell people who Payson is? Because they don't, probably don't know the first name. Uh, Payson, He's got a mustache. Payson McGelvin. He's got a mustache. He rides for Orange Steel. Uh, <laughs> Former national champion, yeah. Red Bull athlete. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah he's been we've actually raced mountain bikes together since we were 17 years old. So we've known each other for a long time. So he did. I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. A big 100-mile loop. Better go Better go do this. Um, and those, like, kind of for those who don't know, an FKT is also, at least most of them are, like, fully self-supported. So you can't, like can't have drop bags you can't have people aiding you in really any way to carry all your own fluids dash all your own trash uh carry all your own food etc um which makes it kind of that's one of my favorite parts about it is you have to like figure out how much water to carry it's kind of a gamble you're like well this isn't enough but it's gonna have to be enough um and to figure out where to carry it all and i don't know i think it's part of the cool thing is just because of all the planning and all that behind it Mm. so yeah. So you took the record, I think from Payson, is that correct? It, or um, did somebody else have it well, at that point? Quinn Simmons had it, but he didn't start in the same place as Quinn. So, or I mean, as Payson. So I'm not really sure if it was official or not. I think it's, it counts because it's a loop and you can start wherever you 
so choose. <laughs> but it's also kind of cool that Payson has it standardized and starting in the same easy spot. Um, so Quinn started at the bottom of Schaefer climb, which is the last like 30 minute climb on the, on the ride. So he started there first, went up the climb and then did the loop and finished back at the bottom. And Payson started at like the normal parking lot where most people would start just because it's an easy place to park. You can don't have a, a car, like a car that can drive down this twisty steep road. Um, yeah. And to be clear with this too, people usually do this. Like it's a common, common bike packing route. Yeah. People will like bring their camping stuff and they'll ride it in three or two days, usually, um, <laughs> kind of dividing it up into chunks. So doing it in one day period is really rough, <laughs> yeah. but then doing it and trying to do it the, the fastest time ever is even harder. So your, your time, I think was, what was your original time that you had on it? My original time was five thirty and a half, I think not. Yeah. Okay. Right about there. And then Payson McKelvin took it or sorry, not Payson, Peter, Peter Stetton took, took it, it from you. Yeah. By about two minutes. Well, so he, he went, he went and did it and he missed it by 16 seconds. So then he went back like a week later or something and did it again and took it by just about two minutes from, from my record. And Peter Stetna is world tour Trek pro writer, yeah. but now he's doing what, now what is his gravel, gravel stuff? Yeah. There for canyon yeah probably also um, has a mustache yeah he does yes. <laughs> interestingly yes yeah. he does there's a theme here <laughs> yeah. uh, all right so keegan uh going from you've done it before to this time now let's get nerdy for everybody mm-hmm. here on the podcast and let's talk about like the details so what did you learn from last time that you wanted to apply to this time oh man i think the biggest thing i learned um was that it's definitely it's harder than i thought it was going to be <laughs> Uh, so I think that was the biggest thing. Like it, you look at the profile and it looks like it's like you start, you kind of descend and then you like gently climb and then you descend again and then it's flat for like 30 miles and you climb and you're done. And that's what I kind of assumed it was, but you get out there. It's just like the climb is like this, it's just like, like sharp teeth, like these gnarly steep climbs that you have to go way over FTP to get over. And that wasn't really like in my pacing plan. Like I was like, Oh, I didn't realize I was going to have to do 400 Watts to get up this climb. Cause I'm I use a big chain, like a 38. So you kind of have to go harder than you want to go. Um, so I think that was one of the big things. And it's also way rougher than I originally had thought. Cause my first time I did the FKT, my first time riding, like I hadn't ridden pre-ridden or done anything on, I just sent it. Um, and it's definitely chunky. Like everyone's like, Oh, I need to use a gravel bike and or a hardtail. And you're like, wait till you get out there and go look at it. It's, it's rough. <laughs> like, cause I think a lot of times in the videos you can only see the smooth parts. It's hard to get video of the really rough parts. So there's parts where you're going like 25 or so miles an hour. Just like, it's like cows stepped in concrete, you know, that's the best way. Just like these little potted rough pieces of rock. Um, so I think that's, so is that, so you wrote a full suspension then? Right? Yeah. I wrote my, uh, my Santa Cruz blur with 2.4 Aspen. So I ran bigger tires this time too. I went up at last time around 2.25s. This time I ran 2.4s for the sand and for the, the roughness. Um, and then. So go on. preparing for a course that you can't like pre-ride and see, like how, how do you prepare for something that you can't just like casually pre-ride in a day, you know? Yeah. Like, and for athletes who like can't call upon like videos and things like that, like how do you prepare? Well, I mean, luckily I was able to look at some of Payson's videos um, that he had done. So I kind of had a rough idea, but really I just looked at the profile and like, I knew there was going to be sand out there. Like my dad had ridden it like 
15 years ago. And he's like, Oh yeah, there's a bunch of sand. It kind of sucks. Um, so I knew like kind of what was going on out there, but, and I knew there was like basically one big climb at the end. Otherwise I really didn't know what was between the start and the finish. So that I knew it was like, Oh, it's pretty flat. So I'm going to run a 38 and I'm going to ride the full suspension because I, I think it's the right choice. I patient it. So it must be the right choice. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of all I had to go on other than the, the distance. Like I knew it was going to take roughly five and a half hours. Um, this time though, we went full nerd, right? Like we took the GPS oh, yeah. file, we ran it through best bike split, ran like 30 different scenarios and like, <laughs> y'all are extra. That's too much. Yeah. You have, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Welcome to me. You kind of have to now it's get the records getting so fast. You kind of have to do all you can. And like Peter ran aero bars and I'm like, I refuse. I'm not going to do that because it's a mountain bike thing. So I'm not going to run aero bars. So <laughs> like you have to go like a little, a little nerdier to figure out how to gain time without doing that. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's probably, I feel like those are worth a few minutes at least. So it's, you gotta kind of get nerdy with it, which is like part of the fun to figure out your pacing and be able to push your limits. Um, yeah. You wear a aero helmet. I, uh, well I got aero road helmet. So, or my Giro vanquish, like a semi aero helmet, I guess. Um, trip socks, no trip socks, no shoe covers. I think so. <laughs> uh, I'm just worried that those would get too hot and like, you're only doing like 18 miles an hour, which is fast, but it's not like TT fast. So I think you can, you don't want to do like too much aero stuff where you're going to overheat or have problems like that. So mm. how'd you carry, how much water did you carry? And then how did you, how do you carry enough water? For five and a half hours yeah. all at once. Uh, it's a good question. So I actually did some testing here in Tucson. Um, I've been trained down here all winter and luckily it's warm enough that I, there were some days where I was like, oh, I can go test this. So I did a day testing, what did I test? 250 mil an hour, which was not enough water. <laughs> I made like, I had <laughs> like a big five hour ride. And I just was running 250 and which isn't very much. I mean, it's like half bottle an hour. Um, so that... I tried that and I, I detonated pretty hard, like three and a half hours. And I was like, okay, this isn't enough water. So then I bumped it up a little bit and kind of found because last time I used, what did I use last time? I think I ran about 75 ounces. So I don't know what that, I don't know what that converts into liters. I can't remember exactly, but it wasn't quite enough. Um, and then, so this time I ended up 2.2 liters is what you had. 2.2. Yeah. So this time I ended up with like 2.7, I believe which was one like regular tall bottle in the bike. And then I ran a hydration pack on the back, like an under, under the Jersey one. So it was arrow and that, that one held two liters. So, so to to frame that frame this for everybody on this. So the five and a half hours, Keegan wants the least amount of weight as possible to finish, but also not to be dehydrated enough where he's stuck like 60 miles in and it has to like i don't know yeah. call someone i don't know what would happen so you what you did is you went in so you similar really you're yeah <laughs> you're, you're dangerous man uh, um so that's why he he went to a uh in tucson where it was similar weather and he had tried stuff and he knows himself well enough where he could actually do a five and a half hour ride try to do the same kind of power and just play with the uh the hydration you did at 500 mils an hour wait no, 250 an hour, which is insane. I'm at like one liter an hour. I think my sweat rate was like one liter an hour, right? Something like that. Yeah. You'd be <clears> so a you must have lost after this. Well, Keegan, I bet you sweat a lot too. High, le- high level athletes sweat more than untrained athletes. 
And I don't say I'm, I'm untrained, but uh, Keegan's <laughs> way more trained than me. I would not be surprised if Keegan's sweat rate is really high. Uh, and you you died at two, 250 milliliters. But that is, uh, that's very interesting. Uh, I did, did your performance drop at the end, do you think, from dehydration? Or did you like get the line just right? For this attempt? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I nailed it. Like I finished and I actually had like one more sip left in my bottle. Um, my plan was to drink the pack first because you really don't know how much like you're drinking when you're drinking out of the pack. You're kind of just, you can feel it sloshing, but you really don't know. So I was trying to like moderate that pretty well. So I drank that for like the first, probably the first, let's see, for just under four hours. And then I went to the bottle um, and slowly worked on the bottle. And actually like I tried to finish most of it before I got to the bottom of Schaefer climb and just save like one sip for the top. Because Schaefer is, that's like the crooks last time I blew up so bad out there that I actually almost had to get off and walk up pieces of it. I was going so slow. <laughs> so this time I, I tried to pace it. I don't know if I paced it smarter, but maybe I fueled better. and was able to, uh, not die up shapers. I'll at least ride tempo, which was pretty good. Um, I think in theory, I think the way that Payson started the FKT, if you pace it just right, that should be faster. Cause in your light for the climb, you're dehydrated. Like you're, I'm probably about, with the water weight on me and the water weight that was in me, I'm probably like almost 10 pounds lighter by the time I get to Schaefer. So I think if you do it right, it's probably the quicker way, but it's so hard to pace it right that, um, yeah, I don't know. It's either slightly quicker or incredibly slower. Exactly. Yeah. Bike up the hill. Yeah. And this time yeah. I think it was just this marginally is- slower. Like I wasn't, I wasn't able to ride quite the goal I wanted to up it, but I did pretty well. I didn't have to get off and walk, which was pretty good. What I just want to uh, say for everybody is Keegan's strategy here is not the normal, like we don't advise everyone to like try to lose 10 pounds on a five and a half hour. This is very like top level pro. You're going against world tour people, uh, not recommended, right? Yes. Uh, don't, don't do what Keegan uh, did here, but it's very interesting. Although uh, in road races, you can do something similar, the big climb at the end and just, uh, but at a, not as an extreme level, right? You might say, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to do, uh, make sure I don't have two full bottles on my bike as I come up on this last climb at the end. And that means at this aid station or this feed, I'm going to have, I'm only going to get one bottle instead of two, that sort of stuff you should totally plan out. And especially in, um, Ironman races too. So when I did Ironman racing, I would always have two full bottles on my bike that I didn't even touch at all time. They just, I just like carried them along because I was afraid I was going to get dehydrated somehow. I don't know. I didn't do the math, but you drink from one bottle, but there's so many aid stations that you don't really need it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would just have just, yeah, just, I think a lot of triathletes do that. You see them and they're like, why do you have two bottles in the bike behind your bottom and then two in the frame uh, and then one between the arrow bars? Yeah. It's when a lot of weight station. When you think about it. It's a ton of weight that you're carrying. Like at Leadville, it's yeah. This is a good example. Like at Leadville, we talked about this, but, um, when I did it, it the, when I got to the base of Columbine, I actually, uh, shout out to Yuri Oswald, friend of the podcast and friend of, I'm sure most here, but, um, Yuri was at the bottom and I dropped off my hydration pack to Yuri at the bottom of Columbine. And then he was going to have it for me at the next aid station. So then I was able to like, once I got down from the climb. Right. So it's that sort of stuff in the crucial moments when you're going uphill and it's steep, you don't want to be carrying that extra weight. So if you can time it appropriately, that's, it can be a huge difference. I had a friend, they were so, they were like trying to, uh, I guess kind of 
you know, do me a favor. And they gave me a hot pack of uh, <laughs> hydration on the bottom of the column of a uh, power line. The, the I issue was that I didn't was. figure that out until the top, to the top of power line. And then I dropped it. Uh, but oh, it would have been smart just to take a sip and dropped it at the bottom. Cause that's, that's like five pounds or something. Those, those packs full of two liters Least. with yeah. the pack. Yeah. It's that was John, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, Nate. <laughs> I ruined Nate's Leadville. He would have been even faster. No, it was awesome. It was amazing. Otherwise, so, um, okay, uh, Keegan. Some other stuff. So, what other equipment did you use? Uh, let's. So, you talked about the helmet. That's one of the biggest arrow gains that people can do. But then, what about the clothing that you were wearing? I wore a Rafa skin suit with uh, has pockets. Those three pockets in the back, so I was able to keep my gels and um, some other random stuff in there that I need. My phone for music big piece for an FKT this long. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you actually have a playlist too. People can go to your Instagram and find like you shared your playlist. I do. Right? It's on the, Ooh. it's on Spotify. So I have it on my account and it's on the Santa Cruz bicycles account. Um, it's about, can you put that it's long in the forum? Yeah. Can you yeah. put that in the forum? I would yeah. be so cool to do that. Yeah. I hope Is it's it mostly like Justin Bieber. Creed track <laughs> on repeat over. Oh, no, Creed. Did you say Creed? <laughs> yeah, I said Creed. Yeah, I said. <laughs> but it's, uh, similar jokes. We went a little bit different ways. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With That's... arms wide open over and over for the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, it's. Uh, you don't know. Ke- Keegan's got the hair going. The, yeah, yeah. You, you uh, can see him in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was going to be, I was going to make it like five hours and 25 minutes. Cause like, that's how fast I want to do this. But then I got excited and it ended up being seven hours. So now I've got like a seven hour playlist for long rides, which is kind of sweet. Um, nice. Yeah. And then, uh, so you didn't use uh, socks. You just use normal socks. You didn't socks. use aero socks. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to get you some aero socks. I'm just saying, thinking of thanks, some things here, but um, yeah. And then uh, shoes, which shoes did you use? Uh, the, you didn't use the Giro Empires. Okay. Which supposedly laces uh, are faster than boa. I don't know. That's what I've that's what I read on the internet. As far as aerodynamics. Do you run go. gloves on this sort of an effort? Like I, I would assume yeah. you'd have to, right? Otherwise your hands yeah. would just be destroyed. Yeah, I wore just my usual hand up gloves. I think I wore the, the rock and roll ones, the snake ones. Those are my favorite recently. So um Did you run the, the Vanquish visor? No visor on the helmet just, or did you run gloves? Glasses. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I was worried about okay, sweat cool. and uh other things. And that's pushing it's, uh, I don't know about Go ahead. It. I was going to say, I don't know. That's pushing the nerdy it, level for me with the visor. So. <laughs> the visor too is, uh, I mean, I've worn it, but it's, it's magnetic yeah. and I would not wear it mountain biking because it could just oh. go poof. Yeah. And if it falls off at mile five, first you got to stop and pick it up every time. Oh. Uh, and then if it breaks yeah. or something, then you got to have a broken visor and what do you, what do you do with it? It was definitely no good. Uh, worried about that as well. So yeah, I didn't wear the visor and then let's see equipment wise. Otherwise, what about your bike? Yeah. So you did 2.4 Aspens uh-huh. and then you also were, so you're running the blur. Did you run your suspension locked out most of the time? Did you run like more pressure in your suspension too? I did go. Or? So in the rear, I ran five PSI more than normal. I ran 225 instead of 220 in the rear, um, which works out to like 25% sag instead of 30% sag. So it's not like it's a marginal difference. It just helped to keep it a little bit firmer. Um, and I did, I did run more compression on the fork. So I kept about the same PSI, but just ran more compression. So it was a little bit firmer. So I wouldn't have to lock and unlock quite as often. Um, mm-hmm. But then I was like unlocking and locking pretty frequently because it is pretty rough out there. And actually I bet I had the bike open probably 60% of the time it was open. 
Um, I just think it's more efficient, especially on the flats when you're going really fast. Like you don't need it to be locked out because you're not standing up and like, messing on it. So I think open is faster when you're going like slightly downhill or whatever else. I really just locked it out for the climbs when I was standing. Dropper post or no? I did take the dropper off, ran a rigid post, uh, which I think a dropper wouldn't be bad. Like there was probably a couple descents like where it would be nice. Like on that first descent down the mineral bottom, which is a fire road two track descent, but the turns are like foot out skidding going <clears> fast. So I think a dropper would be kind of sweet for those, but it's also, I don't know, maybe you'd save 10 seconds on the descent. So maybe, and maybe the weight, I, I don't know. I wasn't really sure what to do. I didn't run one last time. So I was like, I'm not going to run one again. I just figured I'd just take it off. This is another thing. Keegan is better than you. Like I don't, it might be some, there, I mean, there could be some people listening that are faster downhill than Keegan, but John is most likely faster than you downhill and Keegan makes John look slow. I don't know. Downhill. Fast, down, so, yeah. Not yeah, slow, he does. He you're, drops you're better. Me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the ability for just about everyone here, that decision of dropper or not versus weight, you'll be uh, faster and safer with a dropper for just about everyone here. And this is Keegan had already ridden it once. He, he knew what it was like and he is seriously world-class. Uh, mm-hmm. So just, I just want to put as people are going to go away and be like, okay, I'm going to do 250 milliliters of water. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have no dropper because of the weight. Uh, uh, boa dials, <laughs> just get laces. Yeah. I always do pretty much always do race with a dropper too. Like I never take it off for racing unless it's like a short track or something where it's like basically a crit. So I think droppers are in general better, but this, this is a, a unique, a unique thing. Um, and I ran a longer stem. So I ran a one ten by minus 17, just slammed to get it as low, long, as low as possible. Cause I think last time I used my normal mountain bike setup, which was like a, I think I had a 90 on there, like a 90 minus 17 or something. And when you're riding like on the, on the tops to keep your, like just, just keep your elbows in and stay narrow. I found like it was almost more work because you're having to use like your arms to hold yourself up more instead of just being able to like lock yourself out. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that kind of made a big difference in comfort. Like I know it's kind of counterintuitive, like a oh, longer stem isn't comfortable but when you can like keep the same back position, but have your arms locked out. That's uh, um, that made a big difference. I think. Um, yeah. And you, you also ran bar ends, which resurrect the bar ends yeah. from the nineties. Right. Um, but you ran bar ends, but you didn't run them on the ends. Yeah. Well, like technically them to the these are called inner bar ends. So they're actually made to be ran right next to the grips, um, is how they're like, they're designed to be ran. So they're basically like oversized togs more or less. Um, how I got that idea is I did the last time before I did white rim, I saw, I did the Swiss or not Swiss Epic, uh, Israel Epic stage race. And one of the German riders had those on his bars and he just slid them all the way in. And just what you, it just gives you, it's like, I think it's more or less just safer than holding on to the tops of the bars. And it's like a little more comfortable because you can actually like kind of angle your hands or like a little more natural position. So you just slide those in until your bars get thick basically. And I ran those there it just gives you something to hold on to. And sometimes I'd just be zoned out and be holding on to these things. And all of a sudden it gets super rough and you're like, well, I guess I'm just going with it here. Cause I can't, I can't change. <laughs> I don't need my brakes and you can't really right turn. Right. And you can't steer the bike because your hands are like, this far apart so you're kind of like leaning the thing and it's oh. so uh, yeah that's otherwise pretty much just a uh aside from the 38 tooth chain ring and other odd thing that's about it uh, and then for the nutrition side of things what did you do to take in the carbs that you had on the bike and how much did you take in per hour mm-hmm. so i had goo gels 
and then I had like the variation of mix in the bottles and cowback, um, some hydro in there. And I ran, let's see, what was it, about 80 grams of carbs an hour. So pretty high. That's I've been testing different limits training. I found like 80 to 90 was kind of the sweet spot. Um, it seems like more than that, my stomach would get a little fussy. And less than that, I felt like I was like, oh, I'm fine. So I might as well like push it up against the upper limit. Um, so last time I definitely didn't have quite enough carbs and had a bit of a detonation. So I think, yeah, uh, when you were in Tucson, like doing big, ri- like, did you test out? Oh yeah. Yeah. I tried my exact, like my exact strategy, uh, with the high carb. So last time I maybe only took in yeah, maybe 50. So I want to try and get in more this time. And so it took me a month or two and I was kind of working on different ways of taking in the carbs and like how to spread it out. And, um, I think that ended up being the right ticket and I actually raced with that same like ratio at cactus cup this last weekend. And that worked great for me there too. So I think for longer events like that, it's anything over two hours. It's kind of a good, good way to go. Um, and this is like, it's tricky too, because once again, you're just not carrying that much yeah, so, to drink. So then it's hard to get in. So this is like yeah. something that most of us average Joes and Janes that are listening to this, we probably don't deal with this, right? Like we don't deal with this constraint of, you can't carry, you can't take in 500 milliliters of water an hour. No. You have to take in less, yeah. right? And you can't carry so for, solid Usually food, it's a lot easier. Like, just I mean, you could carry some solid food, but it's just heavy and it's basically just wasted space and wasted weight. So I think like goos or the chews are probably the most efficient form of carbohydrate. As long as your stomach is used to eating them for five and a half hours, you're, you're good to go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's something worth considering. You can't just like one day be like, I'm going to do 80 grams of carb an hour now. Yeah, you can't just jump into it. You have to train with it for <laughs> yeah. a while for sure. And it's a little weird at first because just like so much eating and drinking. And um, yeah, it's definitely a bit of a, you just slowly ramp into it. Yeah. Yeah. It takes some time. So <clears throat> forgive me. Um, the, let's talk about your pacing. So we worked out this detailed plan where we were like, okay, like we, we looked at the pacing effort. We looked at what you could do in terms of like a capacitive effort. Then we looked at like what you wanted to kind of pace toward, which may not have been quite to that limit. And then we tried to find the best day within a handful of days. And then we looked at weather and we were like, okay, wind, but do we value barometric pressure more than wind? Like which one is actually like more detrimental to performance? Went through everything. Uh, And one of the things that we decided to do was we were like, we should actually, we started looking later in the day and looking at later start times. And it looked like it was going to be faster the later you started, because even though the wind was like one mile per hour more, the barometric pressure was dropping pretty substantially. And that drop in pressure uh, could actually, was actually yielding faster times. And that's one of the things that people don't realize if you're riding in like high pressure environments, not like, you know, uh, anxiety, that sort of stuff, but like actual high barometric pressure and humidity. that's slow. That's yeah. humidity as well. Right. So that's slow. That's why you always hear like of our record attempts where they're really trying to control the temperature in the velodrome. Like when Bradley Wiggins did it, they only allowed a certain amount of people in the velodrome and space them out to not create like, um, uneven pressure within the building. Mm-hmm. Like it's, uh, there's a, a whole lot of, uh, thought that goes into that. And for this, you don't, you can't just put people into a velodrome and control the environment. You have just the high desert of Utah. So, uh, we didn't think it was going to be windy, but it turns out that it was windy. Uh, how did you, cause this is the big thing that a lot of us, we have this great plan laid out, but then once we get into the race time, like the plan gets like, we get thrown a curveball and we suddenly have to adapt. Yeah. So 
When did uh, you start noticing the wind and what did you change? Yeah. So this whole, I mean, this whole FKT attempt and project, um, I mean, there's a, there's a awesome video that monster made as well. If you guys could check that out. So I had to basically they're like, I'm waiting as close as possible to like pick there. They're like, okay, dude, you got to tell me when you're going to do this. Like, I was like, I gotta wait. I gotta wait. I don't know like what's going to be the best week. So within like two weeks, I was like, okay, this week looks good. Just book these dates. This is when I'm going to be there. I don't know what day I'm going to do it yet, but I'll tell you that when I get closer. So it was like this moving target. Right. And then we got there on Monday and John and I like looked at the weather we're looking at best bike split and all this different stuff. Um, and then he's like, they're like, okay, it looks like Wednesday is going to be like the day. It's good. That's a good day. The low, the wind's low. The temperature is a little higher uh, for the high, I mean, the high temperature wasn't high. The high was like 58 or something. So it's like ideal for going hard. Um, so that was the day we picked. And originally I wanted to start at 7 a.m. Cause that was what was going to be the fastest. So it was like, there's this the least amount of wind. And then, um, we ended up checking best bike split again the day before. And we're like, Oh, let's actually, we're going to push that to 10 because the humidity drop and pressure and all this stuff, which I was stoked about. Cause I didn't want to wake up <laughs> at four and it was going to be super cold. It was going to be like 30 degrees. I was going to have to like figure out if I should wear arm warmers and leg warmers and all this stuff. Um, which you don't want to do because you can't exactly stop and take them off. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, ended up starting at 10 and we got up there and I was like, Oh, it is windy. Like this is not good. Like saw my team manager, Jordan was like staking down the tent outside the sprinter. And I was like, Oh man, this is good. This is going to be <laughs> terrible. Uh, so I was thinking about it. I was like, well, like right as I was kind of rolling out, I was like, oh man, I don't know. Like if I don't go hard, I'm not going to get the record. Like I have to kind of hang it out there. So I went with actually I wrote slightly above like the most aggressive pacing plan that John and I looked at, which, so the original plan, I was going to try and ride 293 NP and then I think it was a 280 average, something like that. 284. Yeah. Or yeah. 280. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So around 280 average. And that was going to get me a time of about 525 with good wind. I was like, that seems like a pretty good, like it's pretty conservative, conservative. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it seemed very doable based off training. Um, and then 295 for five and a half. Yeah. That seems doable. Doable. Too, right? <laughs> sure. No problem. No big deal. And then, uh, people are like, I can't hold that for three minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So yeah, then yeah. I rolled out and I was like, well, now we're going to have to go hard. So I'm either going to blow up out here in the desert. I'm going to be walking and it's just going to be a horrible day or I'm going to get the record by like that much. So I ended up basically in the first five minutes changing my placing plans. Like, all right, I'm just going to ride 320 <clears throat> as long as I can. And then that 320 turned into a 310. I was like, okay, 310, this is maybe doable. And then it turned into like 300 and then back to like 320 up Schaefer. So it ended up being pretty good. Like I ended up shooting, I ended up finishing at the, high end of what it uh like the, what was it the capacity plan which on perfect wind day good sand it best bike was said i could do like a 515 or something i think mm-hmm. um and it was like exactly 305 np and like 293 average i think um that so is that so uh <laughs> that ended up being the the mid mid adjust and it was definitely a bit of a gamble um but I was like, you know what? Like I'm here, might as well push it. And if I blow up, then I blow up. It's whatever. Just limp myself. What's up. your weight in pounds and kilograms for everyone listening? Well, I weigh about 145 pounds, give or take a little bit. Um, 
So I don't, I don't so know. about 65 kilograms. About 65. 65 and a half. So I think that's probably about four and a half watts per kilo, I think. Right. For five and a half hours. Yeah. Something like 4.6 watts per kilo for five and a half hours. Yeah. So <laughs> as a, that's why you're national champ. I mean, <laughs> as I was going up uh, Schaefer, it was looking pretty grim. Like I didn't, didn't think I was going to get the record. And I was like, oh man, Pete's, I'm just bleeding time right now on Pete. Like I, I didn't have the, the, uh, Strava thing, the, what's it called? The live segment thing the on my Garmin. Cause there's no service out there. And I also figured it would just stress me out. So I was just going off time, um, and power. So like, this is all I can do. So what's it matter if I have someone to look at, like not going to change my effort. So I was going up Schaefer and I was like, oh man, I think, I'm, I think this is, I think I'm done. Like I think he's kind of wiped the floor with me here. Um, and then I, uh, yeah, I was able to rally at the end and snag it by a few seconds, but and I was going up there. I was like, man, even if I don't get the record, I'm pretty stoked with this effort. Like I got to the top of Schaefer, my MP was still over three, 300 Watts. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Like I've never done this before. So it's pretty good. So like, wait, what was you, you got the time and I ended up getting it by <laughs> six seconds. So six seconds yeah. <laughs> after that long, <laughs> after like when oh I hit the gosh. road at the top of Schaefer, like in my crack state, I was like doing some math and I was like eight miles. If I can do like 25, 30 miles an hour, like I actually might be able to do this. So I, I basically, all I did is focus on, I had my average speed on there on my Garmin. And I basically had to drag my, I was like, okay, just drag your average speed from 17.9 to 18.4 and you you might get it. So I basically just put it in the 3810 and said, you can't shift out of this gear all the way back to the, to the van. <laughs> <laughs> I just went full like caveman with, it. I didn't look at power. I didn't look at anything, but average speed and my gear. And just was like, just keep it spun out, just go. And, and then I was like the last mile, I was like, Oh, you got this. Like, I think I got it. <laughs> Cause I'd started like a couple hundred meters before the actual Strava FKT segment starts just to like give myself a little bit of a uh, little bit of wiggle room at time. And also I ran elapsed time on my Garmin so I could see exactly like I didn't stop. I didn't stop for anything out there, but just in case I did, I have a rough idea of where I was. So, so now you have a special belt buckle. No, it's a trophy, a belt buckle. What is it that gets passed around? Yeah, whoever has the yeah. fastest known time. Yeah. Pete, send that back. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who has to pay for shipping the, the person who got beat? Oh yeah. <laughs> I had to ship it to him last time. So he's, he's got to send it back to me. You're going to do it right? six like six seconds. I know. How could he not do it? I know and so you go off with Strava time, right? Yeah. There's, a, the, there's a segment called white room in one night. And that's the one that we, that we use for the official FKT segment. Keegan, you have to do Leadville and, uh, unbound gravel. Are you signed up for that? No, can, but can we support you? I, I will I, just go. Yeah. Let's like, do it. Let's make it happen. Yeah. I want you to see you do it. <laughs> yeah. It's, those efforts, I love those big, long efforts like that. It's just a, it's a special kind of thing. Fun. You message you're, you're, me if you, like, I want you there. <laughs> you're, right. You're Don't focused. you guys? Oh, for sure. Yeah. We've talked about this before. Like it's, it's where like your physiology is like, I think <laughs> it, it leans that direction. Right. And those long efforts, like you have an ability to ride at a high percentage of your threshold for a long time. That's very abnormal, but your focus this year is Tokyo, though, trying to get mm-hmm. to the Tokyo Olympics, right? Nah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Olympics, who cares? Nah, right? Olympic schmickets, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's the, so, that's the big goal. Um, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I, go on. 
I was going to say, we have to thank producer Aaron here just a bit, because I'm sure that somebody's listening to this and wondering the same thing Keegan was wondering in the beginning of like, why in the world do they make these <clears throat> crazy looking roads? Forgive me. <clears throat> I did a hard effort yesterday. I got new all-time PRs. I saw them on trainer road. I'm super satisfied with it, but now my throat is just like, it's, it's like I swallowed a whole bag of sandpaper. Um, it's just destroyed from breathing VO2 breathing for 15 minutes. So, um, Anyways, history. Did you on the do 305 for five and a half hours too? <laughs> I mean, I did 354 <laughs> for 15 minutes. So. That We're better not be our metric efforts. for an impressive effort now because there's yeah. Still, yeah. a lot of hurt I, feelings. I did it for mine and it, I'd, I'd have to hold 391 watts for five and a half hours. You got this. <laughs> Those oh are gosh. like low VO2 for me, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. Um, okay, so history on the White Rim really quick. The road was constructed in the 1950s by the Atomic Energy Commission to provide access for individual prospectors intent on mining uranium deposits for use in nuclear weapons during production or uh, nuclear weapons production during the Cold War. Large deposits have been found in similar areas within the region. However, the mines along the White Rim produced very little uranium and all the mines were abandoned. So kind of crazy uh, thinking about that, right? Like, so, uh, and, and when people drive this too, it's like 10 to 12 hours to drive this in a Jeep. So like, and people usually take like Jeeps or like heavy off-road vehicles to get around this. So like Keegan, you are like twice as fast as a car on this. It's just insane. So I've got uh, another funny tidbit about this with the drive time and distance. So we had, um, the monster film crew, he was on, he was on a motorcycle, like a dual sport, dual sport motorcycle. And they were like, we, he was leapfrogging me all day, taking videos, um, no drafting. Don't worry. I was never close, but he was just like going back and forth and he actually, uh, ran out of gas. <laughs> so <laughs> I passed him see at mile, I think it was like mile 80 and he looked to me and he was like kind of yelling, like asking if like, he could have my bottle so he could siphon gas from another motorcycle. He had like another guy we ran into out there. And he said, they saw my bottle was full. He's like, ah, just go on. I'll figure it out. So, um, <laughs> anyway, it's a long ways and takes a lot of, a lot of fuel. Even if you're in a motorcycle, it's, uh, most he alive. Yeah. He, he made it out. <laughs> Is he okay? Anybody checked on him? Like, I ended up cycling gas, like with the hose. And it was like, apparently it was a bit of a process, but, uh, he made it in. So. Wow. Cool. Crazy. Yeah. Well, it's cool to have you on here, uh, talking about this, Keegan, uh, congrats. I know that Thanks. you want to go back on a better, better conditions day and, and take more time out of it. Right. So, um, so I guess it's the race to see who does it first, if it's you or Pete, right. Um, since you're focusing on the Olympics, I don't know, we'll see, but <clears throat> okay. Let's get into some questions. Uh, Clemen says, could you guys please talk about how to stay patient and think long-term and not want to improve overnight? I often find myself wanting to get better faster, stronger in a week or in a day, even though I realize it's the consistent training that makes you better. Thanks, Clement. Also, this is probably uh, the same question from everybody. If we're all honest internally, we're all frustrated with not getting better instantly in different aspects of our lives for sure. Um, Ivy, do you want to kick us off on this one uh, with your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. I think we can all empathize with this. And uh, I think it's important for Clement to unpack really where this is rooted from, where their desire to improve or see results quickly really comes from before they try to address, you know, fixing that problem. So is it appearance-based? Um, we all in the cycling industry have to be cognizant of how the fitness industry as a whole 
tends to use those like lose 10 pounds in two weeks marketing schemes that can make us believe that it's possible to see results quickly. And we know that that's not mm. the case um, because influencers, fitness people like edit their photos and like totally, you know, like glamorize that, like you can do it quickly, but like at what cost? So um, we can really create a dangerous narrative that we should allow ourselves to be impatient with our progress and see results quickly. Um, so that's kind of one of the pitfalls of an appearance based like urgency to see results. And then Clemens should consider if it's training progression based. Um, and there are facets of facets of training that don't make us feel like we're getting, uh, faster quickly in the same way that other parts of training do. Like, so for me, sweet spot and like threshold efforts, like never feel like, I never feel like I'm getting better. Like even if the numbers improve, like they always feel difficult and I never, I'm like, I'm not making any progress ever. They always suck. But like a lot of short repeatability efforts for me, like earlier in the season versus later, like the improvement there is like visible for me, like palpable. So it can come like depend upon what kind of rider Clement is like, you know, they might be in a spot in their training where they're not getting for their physiology, like those like really visible improvement type of efforts. Um, and then, you know, there's like the FTX, FTP expectation pitfalls. Like we talk about numbers a lot and like, you know, there are some like unachievable examples out there that we, um, 305 for five you know. and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's easy to, you know, like, even if you're um, like bike racing and an elite athlete, or if you're just like a weekend warrior, like those numbers and that stuff still gets in your head. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess Clement needs to really examine like where that urgency is coming from before you're able to make a plan to be patient about it. Uh, Keegan, I feel like <clears throat> great, great insight on that. Ivy, I like breaking down like why you even have that. Cause then you can understand it and move forward. <clears throat> Keegan, I'm sure you've had this too, because like, I don't know, actually, when did you know that you were like, yeah, I want to go to the Olympics and like, I am going to work toward that. Um, oh man, probably like it was a long time ago. Maybe when I got my first like junior world cup podium, um, and I was like kind of still a long ways out, obviously, but I was like, oh, you know, then maybe this is like actually achievable. You know, that was in 2012 in the Olympics for that year. And I saw like, I mean, Todd Wells went to the Olympics and even following all these like athletes that I, I mean, I had posters of Todd on my wall and I was like, you know, 10, 12 years old, whatever. So to see like him go and then me, like, I was like, Oh, this is like maybe achievable. You know, you go, then I went to U 23s and had a few good results there. And then it finally like kind of clicked that it might be achievable. Once I started like competing at the top level in the U S um, and like getting on podiums at pro XCTs and like U S national championship podiums, but it's still like, you have to like, like it's kind of a step-by-step -step thing. You know, and then I jumped into the elite category in 2016, I actually raced up that year to try and qualify for the Olympics that season. I was still U23, but I was like, I have, you have to race up in order. Howard Grotz was like the main competition at that time. And he was a year older. So it's kind of like you have to race up in order to like be even in contention to go. And I just got like absolutely slaughtered, like in the elite category, which was like coming from, you know, top 10 U23 races. And I had like a fourth place at some of the world at a world cup. And it was like, kind of like hard pill to swallow. You're like, Oh man, I just finished like 
70th and I just got shelled, like absolutely wrecked, you know? Um, and then for that, I was like, all right, now we just got to work on like finishing top 60 and, and then the next goal, you go from finish top 50, top 40, and just like slowly like work your way up. And it's like, you can't look at like the Olympics and be like, oh, I'm just going to get there. You have to like have these small steps along the way. And there's, I mean, there's race goals and then there's, there's power goals, you know, um, like kind of like Ivy mentioned, you have to have like, like you might not be able to do something now, but you give yourself a month or two months and it gets a lot better. Like in 2018, the world championship course in, where was it? in Switzerland had like a two minute climb. So basically for a month, like my coach and I, we did two minute efforts and the first interval set I did of it, I'd made it like maybe four intervals in at, and then just died. Like I could hardly do threshold, you know? Um, and then after three weeks, I was like knocking out almost 500 Watts for two minutes and I could do it over and over and over and over. So it's like, you have to just like give yourself time and like slowly let everything build, whether it's an, whether you're training for an effort like the FKT or whether you're training for an XCO type effort or road race. Like, I think you just can't look at it in the moment. You have to think long-term and just like know everything takes time. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest, biggest thing. It doesn't happen overnight, whether you want it to or not. It's like, yeah, I'd love to go finish on a podium in a world cup. But for me, that's probably like, I just know it's a reality. Like you have to think years away, like, okay, it's probably doable, but even from now it's still two years out maybe or longer. Like my best result is a 19th. So it's like, not to say like a top 10 or top five isn't doable because it's like, we're so close, but everything has to fall into place. And you have to like, once you knock off, check off one box, then there's a whole another slew of them. You have to figure out how to, you know, it's like navigating a maze in a way. Like sure you might have the fitness or the, or the technique, but everything has to go the right direction at the same time. So I think it just, it all takes time. That's mm. the biggest thing. Is Nate, uh, <laughs> well, so, go ahead. Yeah. Nate. <clears throat> I'll go. Who's got birds? I, I like the ambiance. I think it's some <laughs> birds right? in the background. <laughs> I, think that's me. I got the window open. Yeah. Birds. It's Tucson. It's beautiful. It's like 70 degrees. Yeah. So Clement, this is something that, so trainer road, we, we want to as a social engineer. I think that's the wrong way, but we want to encourage you to get fitter and faster. Right? So feedback about your fitness always is especially in the positive manner, gives you motivation, right? And it is tough to have, do a ramp test, then have to wait four to six weeks until you see measurable progress, right? Or at least you get feedback on that. That is super hard. And that takes a certain type of, you know, uh, athlete to be able to have that kind of patience. And this is why though, we did the level system, uh, inside of workouts of just between a threshold, you do a four versus a five. I, sw I swear the difference in that is like measurable race, <laughs> race, yeah. um, results. For instance, you're, that might be the difference between a, uh, a four and a five, like a, a 10 minute effort at threshold and a 12. And how many times we're at that top of that hill, nine, the last 90 seconds, you're like, goodbye everyone. <laughs> and you see, <laughs> you see everyone go ahead, but you're coming back where the next time, if it's a, let's say it's a week later and you've recovered in between those little, little, uh, micro recoveries, you, you could do an extra two minutes and then that keeps you with the group. You get over the top of the hill, you recover, you're in the draft and it's good. So being able to have those little like small increases all the time between ramp tests and see yourself go from a four, four and a half, five, five and a half, six. I swear that just between a four and a seven on threshold or VO two max is gigantic. 
uh, you're like a whole, you would not want to race yourself at seven when you're at a four. Uh, and so you get to, I would say, be proud of those kind of things and take, uh, yeah, take, uh, I forget the word, but feel, feel good about it. Those little small increases between it. And just what you have to do is take recovery. And there is a difference between a very high level rider. You're not going to make the the same sorts of steps and you might have to have more of a constant amount of load before you make those steps and recovery. Uh, cause your gains are just harder to go. Where if you're a new rider, you know, every, uh, couple days you might be going up a half a point or something like that. Uh, and that just keep that in context, everyone that if you're like Keegan's not going to go from a four to a seven in like four weeks, that would be insane. Uh, the amount of increase, but, uh, if you haven't been training for a while or you're brand new for sure. I think you can, you can, uh, have big steps inside of a plan. I think setting, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say too, like just cause your FTP, like kind of goes back to what Nate's like the, the different points and steps, but like just cause your FTP doesn't go up. Like if you do an FTP test and you only, your FTP only raise like two Watts, like I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but that might be the difference. Like Nate mentioned between like being able to do 300 Watts for 10 minutes versus 15 minutes. So even though your FTP is basically the same, your capacity to work at that FTP is yes. higher. So that's like, really what wins races like FTP, like, isn't, it's just a number, you know? So I think you have to be wary of that and be able to like, Oh, now I can ride at a higher percentage of it. And just, that's what makes the difference. That's a huge thing. And that's what the high sweet spot base high volume is made to do is to ride at a higher percentage. But so if you're in a uh, workout pro- profile for threshold, like the sustained intervals, you could, to Keegan's point, you might start at a 20 minute interval and you could extend that to 55 minutes, but your FTP might not go up anymore. That this is important. Like the, we've talked about this a lot of times, a ramp test isn't all the result of fitness. And if you're doing uh, pretty much any race, you're, if you take yourself, hold it for 20 minutes or for 50 minutes, all other things being equal, 50 minutes is always better than 20 minutes, even though the ramp reset test result doesn't change. And then the other thing is that, uh, say you're a crit rider or, or a cross country mountain bike rider and your anaerobic power goes up a bunch. Your, your FTP might not go up at all either, but your repeatability of anaerobic efforts, your cross racer, that's like everything, right? And you probably, Ivy, you probably rather have huge repeatability for anaerobic, right? Uh, especially come towards race season, than be able to hold your FTP for a longer amount of time or have a higher result depending on where you're at. Is, is that right? Yeah, it totally is. Um, and I'm glad that we're on this, on the same page to not, uh, put too much weight into FTP. Otherwise I would. I've quit bike racing like a few times by now. <laughs> uh, I, so like the, now that you can just measure it, that's it's really good to get that feedback. That's what I'm saying. So if Ivy comes in, her FTP hasn't gone up year over year, but her ability to do anaerobic efforts is going in at this, and it's higher than the same time for the race. That's a huge win, and you can get a lot of comfort in that and uh, confidence. That's what I'm looking for. You got confidence in that going into the year that you know you're stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and your FTP doesn't speak to that. Like at all in any way, doesn't at all a few things I'm hearing. So number one, it's to understand your motivations, like what, what you actually want and why you want it. Uh, number two, to make sure that you understand how to achieve that. And really like Keegan said, like recognize the fact that you're going to have a lot of steps to get wherever it is. Like, it's not just like, like for Keegan, it wasn't junior U 23 world cup boom, or like elite boom, it's done. Right. Like there were a ton of intermediary steps that he had to take. And then in addition to that, it's make sure you're measuring the right things, right? Instead of just trying to look at one 
vanity metric or instead of trying to look at something that somebody else does, make sure that you're measuring the right things that matter for you. And that's why PRs are so, so powerful. I think one thing that I want to add to this is having, uh, it's very common. I see a lot of athletes put too high of expectations or unrealistic expectations on themselves. And in most cases, it's because there is a really big goal that they want to achieve and they're not ready to achieve that one without achieving other ones first. Um, and it's not that it's unrealistic to shoot high, but you just have to have a clear path to it. But sometimes if it's such a high goal and that's your main focus, but you really need to focus on the smaller steps in between them, then it can become pretty discouraging as you're working your way, working uh, toward that. Even Nate with, you know, business and starting trainer road and everything else we've grown, not like it wasn't an overnight thing at all. Right. It's incremental and you have to build upon that. And over time. So I feel like setting realistic expectations for athletes is so important and it's not setting, um, there's a difference between sandbagging yourself, like basically like setting something like be like, oh, okay, do 15 steps today. Like, you know, you can do that clearly. There's a difference between doing that, but then also setting goals that are achievable. And I think that is, that is really important is to have something that's achievable. Like Keegan, you've mentioned this with world cups. You're not shooting for a top 10 in the world cup right now. You're not shooting for top eight in the world cup. You're not doing that. Like you're not going for top four, nothing like that. Instead, what is your goal with world or what was your goal last year with world cups? Leadville win. <laughs> Just yeah, the goal, like kind of the last since 2019, the goal has just been like consistent top thirties. Cause I think once you like, once you have a few results there, like, okay, now we can focus on top 20. We have this one, this box is checked. You know, you can build and you can just build on it. Cause you learn all these little things and different courses and sure, even if I finished 32nd, I'm like, uh, kind of like I'm a little bummed, but still close, you know, it's consistency. I think like, I'd rather be, I'd rather have like, four top thirties then go from like an 18th to a 50th to a 60th. Like it's nice to have that consistency. It's easy. It's a bigger base to build on, you know? Um, so now like now that I had last year, all my world cup results were inside the top 30. So now this year I'm like, okay, now we can like, let's bump that to top 20 and make that like the real goal. And that's really what I'm shooting for. And then, I mean, still the ultimate goal is a top eight. Cause that's the auto qualifier for Tokyo. But I know that by that still, like it's doable, but everything has to like click. And some people probably have to have some off days for that to happen. So I think it's still like, you have to keep like, it's just the reality. Like I'm not quite to that level yet, but it is possible. So I think you just need to be patient with it and make it happen. To bring slowly. something, to bring something up for this, um, um, producer Aaron, can you share this image, uh, that we have here linked in? This is actually sent in from a podcast listener, which is really cool. And for those that are on the podcast, um, you can be able to check it out there, but I thought it was a cool visual, um, that can help us kind of understand this when we're talking about Keegan and he's saying top twenties, top everything else. And then, you know, all of us, we may have a very different set of goals, right? But I like this chart that he wrote down. He basically like shared this chart was with along these lines and basically said, this should help you understand, or maybe as a visualization of a guide of where to set your expectations, especially when you're talking about athletes, like the amount of sacrifice that you have to make in your life and the lifestyle changes in order to get better, they, they just keep growing and keep growing the higher you go. Right. And for me, I know that I don't even get close to that world champion level. So I don't want to set expectations that are too high for what I'm willing to do. Right. And it shows that there are less people that, that achieve at the higher point. And I like that with this graph, 
like I know that I'm, I'm okay dwelling within that cat one cat two area, right? Like that's where I'm okay with, um, sitting within that range because that's what I'm willing to sacrifice. So it's just really important. Like we see so many athletes and we talk about high FTPs a lot of the time because we have fast athletes on this podcast a lot of the time, or we talk about high FTPs because somebody's sending in a question about it. And that's just the question that we pick. Right. Um, but it's important to not set expectations that are from somebody else because there's somewhere else on this visual spectrum that we're looking at right here. There's somewhere else than you. And that doesn't mean that you just need to sacrifice exactly what they're doing. You need to rise to that occasion. You have to understand what you're willing to sacrifice and then be able to set those expectations. Um, Keegan, you actually had a point on this graph though, that you, you, you would want to change, right? Do you want to cover that? Cause I think it's insightful. Yeah, I think. So if you look at the green one, how like there's the elite, like the very top. Wait, can, yeah. Can we describe it? Cause people on the podcast can't don't Please know. go ahead. Go on, they yeah. Explain. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is two triangles that are inverse. So, uh, the triangle, one of them says number of people like you, and there's a big base on the bottom and that's where it's like cat five average person. And then as it gets to world champion at the top, it's very, it's the pointy end of the triangle. And then the opposite triangle that sits next to it says lifestyle changes, changes required. And at the enthusiast level, there's barely anything. It's the point. So there's no lifestyle changes required. And as you go up, that gets bigger. So the idea is if you're a world champion, you have to have tons of lifestyle changes required. In Cat 2, it's kind of equal in this graph, although I think it's probably pretty high. Actually, yeah. most people have Cat 2 are like they are focused on cycling and that is their thing. And it kind of runs their life, especially if they have a job. But then if you get to the pro and like Keegan's level, it's even more. Uh, so, okay, Keegan, what what do you, uh, what's your insight? Well, I think, I mean, John and I were talking about it the other day, but I think that the, like the top two levels, like that world championship one's a little too, like, it's a little too isolated. I think like the, uh, world-class and world champion, it's almost should be a little like more or less the same. Um, obviously to be a world champion, you have to be slightly above the rest of the competition, but I don't think their lives are any different than the world-class. Like they just are, they're just better. I even think like, I think most of the world-class level are living the same life, same program and the world champions are just, more talented on that day or they're just better. And no matter what you do, like I could change my lifestyle in like all sorts of different ways, but it's not going to make me any better than I am. Like, I think I'm optimizing to a certain extent, like my lifestyle to be as best as I can. So I'm not sure I like fully agree with how pointy that tip is, but anyway, it gets like, it kind of gets the point across that like, um, as you go up, you have to make sacrifices and make changes if you want to get better. Like you can only get so good if you're, you know, the thing that we don't see in here is genetics, right? Right. Because some people with genetics, they start at cat two, which is so annoying, right? So annoying. John off the couch is like four Watts per kilo, which is super annoying. Uh, and then to your point too, at that high end, they're all living that monk lifestyle and the world champion is, uh, it's genetics and probably, uh, also, you know, talent and skill and stuff too, but also, uh, uh, a little bit of luck on the day too. Every, every world champion has to have a good day. Uh, oh, yeah. Perfect no day. flats, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. No technical ability or issues. It's, I, I, I agree with your point. For sure. Um, so yeah, hopefully this is a good discussion that we can have here on, uh, or hopefully this has been a good discussion for everybody on uh, setting expectations. It's one of the biggest things because if you have motivation, you're consistent. And we've talked about this plenty of times. If you're consistent, 
that's one of the biggest deciding factors. If you're consistent with your training and you seeing improvement, right? So, and so much of that comes down to motivation and motivation depends on where your eyes are set. Sorry for the chiasmus there, but you know, the best way to see improvement, don't train for like a year and then come back. Yeah, it's so fast. Yeah. <laughs> we were joking yesterday with, uh, Brandon, our COO, uh, and people know him from the ramp tests and, and on the podcast and stuff. He's very fast and he's taken time off of training recently with family and job stress and everything else. So he took a lot of time off job stress. <laughs> he got a new position and <laughs> has a whole he's lot of twins. responsibility <laughs> and twins. Right. So um, with all that, he took some time off and then yesterday, and I think he dropped like 70 Watts on his FTP. And we were joking that yesterday with every pedal stroke, we could actually see his FTP increasing as he was climbing up the road. So comes back fast, uh, for some folks, uh, let's go into Lawrence's question. He says, I'm looking for your advice on nutrition and calorie intake. I train between eight to 12 hours a week and occasionally will throw in a higher volume week of 15 hours. If life permits, I noticed a difference in my progress when I started consciously increasing my calorie intake compared to previous seasons, especially after back-to-back long rides, which is awesome. That's super good to hear. We, we see that across the board with everybody. When they start to take in enough to fuel their work, then they get faster. It's a big, uh, very tight correlation. However, I often struggle to eat sufficient calories without resorting to dense sugar-rich foods like chocolate or snacks. So I assume he's talking about like, like donuts or like, you know, really high in calories and yes, they have carbohydrates, but that doesn't mean that they're the same as, you know, brown GABA rice, for example, um, or vegetables or anything else or chips or anything else like that. So Lauren says, what would you recommend? Are there a few nutritional swaps I can make, or should I look at improving my nutritional intake all around? Um, so on the food option side of things, I think that he probably knows this. We've mentioned this on the podcast before. Um, but Nate, you've actually talked to like uh, good alternatives for people. And in, in this case, like what sort of things do you usually rely on? Like carb, uh, healthy carb staples, uh, to be able to fuel yourself. Yeah. Uh, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. Those are kind of the, the main ones I have. Uh, so I am getting, I saw on TikTok. uh, a, <laughs> this is like a cooking, it's like a vegetable hash that you can make ahead of time. But uh, like I'm <clears throat> the problems with vegetable hash is the prep right? Like to get a whole bunch of things cut up. But what I also saw is I'm getting a food processor that like will, uh, dice vegetables for you. So you just kind of like push it through and my it's, it's back ordered. But what I want to do is, so you put sweet potatoes in regular potatoes, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, carrots, um, anything you want, you dice them all up and then you just bake them with some olive oil. And that's like your, like a real good nutrient, kind of hash. And then you could add that to quinoa or brown rice. You could put a protein on it. And then if you, you could play with different sauces to make different types of bowls, you can put some pork on it, whatever tofu or whatever your diet is. And I am very excited to, to make that and then kind of make extra for the week and you can reheat it. And, uh, that's like a, I think it's going to be a really good way for me to get some more vegetables in. Um, but I mean, oatmeal too, that's great. Uh, sweet potatoes are great. I already talked about potatoes. What are some more, um, any type of berries, apples, bananas, uh, then you can do whole wheat pancakes, uh, all, all those kind of things too. Those are delicious. I, I think someone here loves pancakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, it's, so with this too, it's not just down to making sure that you know that the foods are there. Ivy, you brought up a great point. It's also about like making sure, and Nate, you kind of alluded to this with like the food prep and everything else, but it's making sure that you have like strategies in place to be able to make this an easier or more convenient choice. If it always comes at like a great 
cost of convenience. Like I don't have this food to pre- prepared and I have to do this and that's going to make it tough. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's not enough just to like make the right choices when you're in the grocery store and like pick things like meals and snacks that are, you know, healthy and appropriate and what you need, but it also has to be presented in a way that makes it just as easy of a choice as like those like really quick snacks that are maybe not great. Um, and I think that, you know, meal prep and food prep can be like, people have this idea of like having like 30 containers in their fridge of all these like pre-portioned meals. And it does not have to be that like, you don't have to, you know, one example is to have like one sauce or like thing that can be applied to many different things. So like, um, like veggies prepared, like roasted in a certain way that can go in an egg scramble that can go in tacos that can like go on top of a salad. And, you know, so you don't have to like pre-portion and pre-decide what that looks like. It just has to be like prepared so that when you need a quick snack, you can just like throw it on something and it's ready and you don't, or like, you know, you don't have to like wait for rice to cook or like wait for to roast veggies. Like they're there. Um, and that food prep time, you also have to like schedule that or like consider that too. You can't like wait till Sunday afternoon after you've done like a four or five hour ride and expect yourself to have like the cognizant ability to think about food prep and what you want to eat that week. So Mm -hmm. scheduling that time is important too. One thing I just made uh, with my daughter, which was super fun is like homemade fried rice. You can do it with brown rice and you can, you can put extra frozen veggies in so you can, you can get it just how you want it. And then that stores so well in the refrigerator and I just put it in a giant Ziploc bag and we ate it throughout the week. And then maybe it's a side dish for a meal or maybe it's the main part with protein on it. And then we put on different types of salt, like a peanut sauce one night or like a teriyaki sauce. And it, it's really key too when you food prep to get the ones that are, that reheat well. If you kind of like try to preheat a bunch of like sliced steak and then microwave that, well, like you cannot eat that, but vegetables reheat really well. Unless you have an air fryer, stick it in that. That's really good. Uh, and then the fried rice too. It's super fun. You make it super garlicky and put a bunch of veggies in it and do brown rice. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great. And it's great cycling food too. Yeah. I, one of the things that helps me too is making sure that, so I, I'm a list and spreadsheet sort of person, but having a list that I fill out throughout the week, when I think of these things, I actually put them down on the list and it just makes it a lot easier. So then when I'm at the grocery store, like I don't have to stop and think about what I want to do. Uh, also it's really helpful to get recipe books that are really helpful. I know that this seems super logical, but a lot of the times we know these things exist, but we don't actually implement them. Right. So like, uh, but having a recipe book, so then you can basically say, okay, this meal would work really well with this meal and this meal. So I can create the same ingredients and it can work across all of them. And then it makes it easy, but that going by that recipe book will just make it so that it's easier to, to grocery shop, um, and to get it handled quickly and without, you know, getting stuck and, uh, going down the wrong aisles, so to speak. (laughs) Um, also with that too, when you're at the grocery store, I think that if you like one of the principles that's good to follow is if you're shopping for meals, shop for meals, do not shop for hunger, right. Or do not shop for like what you crave at that time. Uh, and that's like a really important thing to be able to do. Keegan, you had a thought on this though, that like, and I, you alluded to it. Like if you feel like you need to have these prepackaged containers that are labeled and all of this stuff, food prep can be daunting, right? Like how do you manage, manage all of it? Cause you can't eat. This is a good point. You're optimizing your lifestyle. Like you mentioned to the nth degree, 
compared to a lot of us amateurs. So if you have to then add in a lot of stress from to on the nutrition side of things, that's going to make you slower on the bike. It's going to make you worse. So mm-hmm. you can't afford that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think like kind of like Ivy mentioned like food prep isn't necessarily like having all these meals lined out and everything planned. Um, you can like kind of make it easier for yourself. If you like plan ahead, you're like, okay, I mean, like have rice in the fridge pre-cooked and like, I always like to have like frozen broccoli in the freezer as well. I really don't like frozen vegetables, but that broccoli is one that I love and it's super easy to do. Like, Oh, I ran out of salad. I can just like throw up some broccoli, throw some broccoli on the stove and saute it. And then all of a sudden you have some extra greens to go with your, your bowl or whatever. Sometimes you get like, I just get stuck in this like training groove and you're like, Oh, I just need to eat and I eat protein, carbs, protein, carbs. And you kind of like forget about grocery shopping and cooking and like life. You just get so stuck into this vortex of training. So it's nice to have like these things that make it easy um, to cook with and to eat. And I think the other thing is like after a hard ride, it's nice to be just come in, open the fridge. I got leftover like stir fry or whatever you made the night before. It's nice to try and make bigger. So you have leftovers which uh, Sophia hates me for this because I generally, we don't have a lot of leftovers because I eat them all. Um, and she always gets mad. She's like, I tried to make enough and you just eat it all. So I think, yeah, like try and cook, like when you're cooking for two, you're going like, oh, to cook for six and have enough leftover food. And another like easy thing that I eat a lot for training is just like avocado toast because you have carbs, fat, protein, you throw an egg on top, you're good to go. So I think you can keep it simple, but still be kind of prepared. Um, and like when you're, after a big training block or after a hard ride, or if you're pro- like preparing like carb loading for a hard one the following day, like just eat, uh, just like add rice or add pasta. You don't have to eat, like you don't have to go and like shove down cake and whatever else you get the carbs. It's like rice and pasta is pretty simple carbs. And then you have to think about it. You're like, Oh, I've got a big training day. I need to eat more carbs. And you just like supplement it with rice or pasta or extra bread. I think it's not super hard to do. Um, like I eat fairly simply kind of have a few meals that I cycle through and I'm not complicated. I don't really cook out of or like a cookbook very often. Like it seems like I have like as a pro athlete, I do have a fair bit of time, but you just like, you don't want to do it. You just want to sit on the couch and you're just blown out a lot of times. So you don't want to have to like cook and plan and do all this. So I think every once in a while, I'll like, Oh, I'm going to make this meal. Cause it's delicious. And, but it's not that I don't eat anything super fancy or like mm-hmm. super not complicated. What, what are your meals? that you cycle through uh i mean normally there's uh let's see i do a lot of uh we do a lot of like bowls like nate mentioned with like rice or like sweet potato a lot of we eat a lot of sweet potatoes and those are awesome carbs they're kind of a carb and veggie together so i, I love them <laughs> i think that's an awesome awesome food um we do do enchiladas a lot and like kind of burritos type things because it's kind of similar like thing you can change it the way it is you can have like tacos one night you can make enchiladas um it has like kind of all your food groups do a lot of curry actually um do that a couple times a week because it's super easy it has broccoli sweet potatoes like everything in there you need and it's healthy and if you have a big training day you just add more rice so it's a pretty easy thing to do um do pizza fairly often don't always make the dough like handmade sometimes you just get a trader joe's or get like the pre-made dough or you buy like like a pre like a take and bake pizza. And then you can just like dress it up with other good things to make it better. And it's easy and fast. And, um, yeah, I'd say that's kind of you, uh, chicken mole out of the Instapot has been one that we make a ton because it's super fast. 
um, and it's delicious. So that you can make, then you can use the leftovers and you have leftovers in the fridge for bowls or enchiladas or tacos, whatever the next couple of days. So, um, I'm hungry now. Yeah, no, me too. Me too. <laughs> hungry and Creed is still playing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with with that, we should actually just roll into rapid fire. Uh, what do you guys say to that? Good with that. Cool. Yeah. Good. We're all awesome. nodding our heads like everyone can hear us. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we're good. Yes. Cool. <laughs> Most important question, I think, of the whole time from Phil. He says, "Chocolate. Do you put it in the fridge or do you put it in the cupboard?" I have a strong stance on this big surprise. I care about something that matters very little, but I have a stance. in the cupboard. Yeah. Right. Can't put chocolate in a fridge. It loses all flavor. Like if you do that and then it's like, it cracks and it breaks. Right. I don't know. Keegan. I a hundred percent agree. It should be, shouldn't be warm, but it needs to be, it's like red wine. It needs to be a nice, like 50 to 60 degrees. Um, yeah. Red, white, dark chocolate needs to be stored the right way. <laughs> yes. Although it is pretty durable. It doesn't melt, has a pretty high melting point, but it isn't as good when it's soft. Um, yeah. Agreed. Ivy. I'm going to get decimated for this, oh. but, uh, <laughs> chocolate Freezer. belongs in the garbage. No, oh, I, I just, <laughs> I'm not super into chocolate. Um, and so I have one bar that is like, um, probably a year old. So I keep it in the fridge um, <laughs> in case like, <laughs> I don't know, I have a guest that like needs it or something, or maybe it was a gift. I don't know. So yeah. <laughs> sorry guys. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how people, <laughs> Keegan shaking his head too. I don't know how people so live without chocolate. <clears throat> I'm impressed. Like it's, it's fine. If someone like, you know, offers it to me, I won't like, you know, hurt their feelings and say no, like I'll eat it and like happily do so. But I, it's not something I would like choose normally. I'm so sorry. Next, next. Nate, do I still have a job or <laughs> good? <laughs> Pull the mic cord. Uh, next one's from Caden. This one, he says, how many watts did Keegan's bleached hair save him on his white rim FKT? Keegan, can you take your hat off really quick to show people yeah. on YouTube? So <laughs> it's properly it bleached. Is. It's a flashback the, to the nineties. We've got the roots coming in now though. So it's looking a little darker, but it was like pretty icy at first. Um, <laughs> icy. <laughs> icy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, I'd say between six and nine watts. It's about probably like what it's saying. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, next one's from Allison says a question for Keegan. What are the biggest differences between Keegan's Santa Cruz blur and the pivot Mach four SL that he raced over the last few years? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, they're both, they're both awesome bikes. I mean, it's tw- like 2021 now. I think most full suspension mountain bikes are pretty awesome. Um, mm-hmm. the blur is definitely a bit different. I think kind of what it does, what does really well is it descends amazing. Um, it, uh, I think the, the rear link, the VPP linkage in the back, like really eats up the chunky fast stuff. So you're coming into like a chunky rock garden or whatever. And it seems like the bike just stays planted and doesn't like the rear end doesn't kick around, doesn't kick around a ton, which is partially due to suspension tune, partially due to linkage. There's kind of a lot that goes into that. Um, it's also really stiff. Uh, like so when you're, when you're cornering, the bike is really responsive and you can place the front wheel exactly where you want. If you're like a little off, you can like place the bike wherever. Um, and then it doesn't flex when you're standing up and like really reefing on it, those hard efforts. And then it's purple, which is really cool. So <laughs> I love this. I love my, uh, limited edition player color. <laughs> it's like purple gray. You don't know what it is, but it's rad. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, next one from Lena. She says, which racing type is the favorite of Ivy? Seems like she's raced at all. 
that's kind of true, right? Like you've done everything. Yeah, I've raced a, a lot of disciplines. And I think that normally I would say my favorite type of race is cyclocross because it's um, super beginner friendly. Um, it's like a very individual effort, which is nice because kind of like wherever you're at, you can race and really enjoy it. I love cyclocross, but I'm going to update my answer to say Madison on the track, just because after such a long quarantine, I'd really like to hold hands with my friends. So, <laughs> Madison. <laughs> Human contact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Carolyn says, I'm finally getting a dropper post from a mountain bike, but I don't know which length to get. Help, please. <clears throat> so this one, it's uh, two main things you need to figure out. So number one, what is your current seat post height? So how much from the top of, uh, from the seat collar, the thing that pinches all the way up to basically where your, uh, the saddle rails are. Right. So you need to measure that first, and then you need to look at your bike manufacturers. And if they don't list this, send them an email and ask them and they'll let you know, but how far can you have, or how long of a seat post can you have extended into your seat tube? Right. Cause a lot of bikes have like a bend and as a result, you can't put it all the way in or like a road bike will have kind of like a cutout and mountain bikes. The tube just usually bends. <clears throat> So with those two things, then you can start to figure out, okay, how much seat post can I actually put in and how much do I want sitting above? Um, but the sitting above thing is kind of like differing opinions. Nate, you have really long legs and then you also, you probably should have like two XL bikes instead of XL bikes, but a lot of the time they don't make two XL bikes. So you have to get a really tall seat post. So what do you prefer for you? From as much as a drop as I mean, I'm at, <clears throat> I'm at 205 or 210. So as much as I can get of the, I like the one up dropper. I think it's 205. I forget, but yeah, as, as much as possible for mountain biking. And then Keegan, you differ on this, right? The other way, as little as possible on the cross country bike. Um, I think I ideally like 80 to a hundred would be good. Um, I think, I don't know if it's just cause I raced so long at the high post or, what it is, but I like to have a little bit of like that reference point of where the seat is when I'm descending, you can like use your legs to steer. And it's also like weight. I mean, a longer, the longer the drop, the heavier the post is. And I don't necessarily think that the drop, the length of the dropper post is a limiting factor on a cross country bike. I think that's the tires and the suspension or like what is going to slow you down. Once you get, once your post is a little bit out of the way, it's like, you don't need to have your post all the way gone. Like an enduro bike, you're not shooting down something super steep. Um, an enduro bike, I'd probably run like a 175 ish. Um, still have a little bit of post there, but you definitely want that thing gone when you're going down really steep descents. So I would say, go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted. No, no go. You're good. Done. What, what you have to take into account, I think is where your handlebars are in relationship to your saddle, because my, I'm all the way up here. I'm like way higher. And sometimes with a big drop, I am still more inches above my handlebars than riders are with no drop above their handlebars. And when you're going down something like something steep, that angle is going to be the same. So to get your weight, I need basically, I want my saddle. What is it? Yeah. Below my handlebars as I'm going down. And, uh, if I had a hundred or 80 millimeters of drop, I would probably still be higher than you are Keegan on your regular. I don't know if you can see my saddle there, but it's yeah. pretty high. Um, that's, that's what I think. So it's really going to, I think it depends on how high your saddle is. And to your good point is like how steep it is too. You also probably couldn't even get a hundred mil dropper if you wanted to, because it probably wouldn't make one long enough. Yeah. Cause they probably, they have that minimum insertion length on, on the dropper post. And 
Nate has to run a run a really long dropper post because he has so much height above the frame there that he has to cover. Um, <clears throat> riding a medium, I'm honestly a little bit above. I, I my seat post should be further down into the seat tube, but I have it slightly higher because I'm running a 100 mil dropper right now, and that's the least amount I've ran on a XC bike. I've ran 150, 125, and 100. And I actually like it for a number of reasons right now, because when I'm only dropping a hundred, if I'm, sometimes we all have this where it's like you dropped your saddle, but there's kind of like a little pedally section that you need to do, but you don't want to bring your saddle back up and then drop it again when you're going through like technical stuff. And having a hundred mil drop is really nice because you can still kind of sit down and pedal and, but you know, it's not too low. But because the, the hard thing is, and I know technically they all have infinite adjust or most of them. So you could just like drop it down a bit, but that's really hard. If you're like boxed at the top of a climb and you're like, I'm just going to drop my saddle a little bit to the perfect amount instead of just slamming it all the way down. That's it's really hard. So I really like the 100. Yeah. yeah. I like the 100 for that reason. And yeah, it is lighter, but if I was like Nate, I would have to run a taller dropper for sure. So there's no like ideal length. It's really the function of your seat post height the minimum insertion or whatever the, the, the seat tube depth is, and then you finding the difference between there for, um, for, if you don't have really long legs though, that is definitely a factor you have to consider that you probably don't have to have, um, a dropper that's going to really kind of drop the whole thing way out of the, you place. also might not be able I, to use one because if you're short enough that you can't fit the post in your bike, like I've seen some dropper posts on small bikes with small people that the droppers literally slam down to the collar and they couldn't run like a 125 because they literally have it as low as it can go with a hundred. So I think it's so it's an open-ended question. I have a, I have too big of a drop on my gravel bike to your point, John, I wish I had a hundred mil on that. I think I'll change it because you really don't go to anything steep enough, but there is those little like bumpy sections where if I could just drop a little bit and still pedal, but have that kind of cyclocross hover when I need it. So I don't get bucked over the the bars would be very beneficial. But as it is now, like I drop it all the way down and you can't pedal. Like, yeah. you, I mean, it just feels like a circus, uh, <laughs> you know, an elephant on a little bike <laughs> yeah. pedaling around for sure. Hopefully that, that was helpful to you, Caroline. Um, Gary has a question, Nate, do you want to cover this one? I didn't ask you beforehand if you want to cover it. <clears throat> Sure. Cool. So Gary says, is Nate still planning on racing the Paralympic track race and time trial? If so, what is he doing for specific training? So I found I cannot commit to this to the level that I wanted to. So with, um, Adam, the athlete, I had to tell him no, felt bad, but I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but I tried to hook him up with an athlete with an FTP that more than a hundred Watts than me way better in every way. <laughs> uh, so, uh, maybe Adam, we can send me an uh, update on Instagram, but I, I hope that, uh, that's going well. And, uh, yeah. they go do qualifying in Portugal. I want to go cheer them on and go to Portugal. That'd be pretty awesome. I just shouldn't be the one pedaling the bike. <laughs> not, not enough Watts. This next one is from Nate, but probably not our Nate, uh, says Nate wants to know why we don't use percentage of FTP on our head units in place of power. So like, instead of looking at your actual power using percentage of FTP. Oh, it's hard to do the math. Yeah. Like, I mean, cause I just want Watts. Like, uh, I don't even know if I go, so at my FTP, what's the difference between 89% and 92% for Watts? Is that a big jump? Is that a small jump? I don't really know. I also yeah. think it'd be precise and, uh, enough. Like the yeah. percent would be too big. Like sometimes doing intervals at 310 Watts versus like 315 and like percentage wise, that'd be like 80.5 or 90.2. So I think it's just like, it's like using bar to 
inflate your tires. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> on the record, Keegan the, does not like ooh, bar. <laughs> I don't like bar. I don't want to run 1.75. Just use PSI. It's so yeah. easy. <laughs> metric system is better in general. Gonna be. I'm going to tell you, metric system is better. Bar, not good. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with this. <laughs> I agree. Uh, next one's from Scott. He says, I have a big head and my XL helmet hardly fits making matters worse. I'm balder than Chad. He says, Oh, for Chad, uh, it says, so my head gets freezing in the winter. Any tips on how to keep my head warm without adding undue bulk under or to my already massive head, head circumference. Um, lots of chamois cream. Just kidding. Don't do that. I'm not chamois cream. Embro. 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 Yeah. Just Embro all Embro over. On just the sweating scalp. into your eyes. Oh my gosh. That oh, would be so terrible. Oh, no. Don't do that. Don't Capsaicin do that. Capsaicin in the eyes. No, thank you. Um, I guess like, uh, so yeah, it, it, I have, I do have a, it's still something. So it does add to the head circumference, but Rafa makes a really thin like Merino wool beanie. That's nice. Um, I've used the neoprene beanies before and they like get clammy and then they just like freeze your head. They're the worst things ever. So like, uh, if it's going to go on my head, I want it to be wool and they make a really thin one. It's hard to find really thin beanies and they make one uh, that's, that's okay. But once again, that's adding to circumference. Um, Ivy, you, you had a great tip for this one. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. If you have a helmet, um, that has like an arrow shell or, or I guess they make, um, you know, like Velotoes, those uh, stretchy shoe covers. I think they make like helmet covers. They do. I've seen it. But if you if you can, yeah, if you can uh, find some sort of helmet cover, then you could like spray insulation fro- foam on the inside uh, <laughs> of your helmet and fill the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to Home Depot. Full time. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Know if that I don't actually yeah. recommend that. Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> That could impact the uh, safety of crashes. Yes. But the yes. I like the cover idea or just like some arrow helmets have like no venting on purpose. Just wear one of those. For sure. And you're set. Yeah, I would try you're fast and you're uh, I was going to say, I would try different helmets. Like if it doesn't, there's got to be a helmet out there that's bigger, that might be bigger in the right places that would fit better. Like maybe you can find XXL in some brand, but there's got to be a helmet out there that fits you. Like it just has to happen. So I would yeah. look harder for a helmet. Yeah, Jose Hermida, that XC racer. Um, Keegan, we should find this link somewhere. I think it was on Instagram, right? Or was it, it was, on YouTube? I don't know. So I think it's a, it's on YouTube, but somewhere somewhere on the internet. But he made a uh, it's basically like how to make your own arrow helmet cover, and it's basically like a piece of plastic with like wood or something around it to hold it. You put it in the oven and like get it nice and soft, and then you like push the helmet into it, and then you let it, let it harden and cure, and then you cut it, cut it, and then you just Velcro it on and you don't even really see it because it's clear and it would keep the wind off your head. I don't know how easy it is to actually do it. It looks pretty easy in the video, but I, I don't know. Yeah. It could be cool. Pro tips. Pro tips. Uh, we'll, we'll share that one. Uh, should I, from Jacob, should I enter TSS for weight training? If so, how much love the podcast and product? He mentions that I'm up 8% to my highest FTP ever after one year using trainer road. Keep up the good work. Way to go, Jacob. It's awesome. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so should he I enter TSS for weight training? I don't know. I don't, there's, there's no formula for TSS for weight training. Um, it's not going to change anything. I, I really, I don't know. I track it. I think Keegan, you track it too, right? I do too. Yeah. It's, um, esti- it's an estimation. It's not, there's no guess. calculation to it. It's just a guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what do you put in? So if it's an easy strength workout, I put 30. If it's a medium workout, I put 40. And if it's a really hard workout, I put 50. And I, that was always just kind of a guess. 
Um, and then I was started doing strength with my Garmin watch and actually the heart rate TSS for those numbers actually was pretty close to lining up for a medium day. It was like 35 heart rate TSS. So I think it was kind of onto something with those estimations and given my strength workouts are normally between 40 and like, I'd say 40 and 60 minutes normally to just a hair over an hour sometimes. So, um, yeah, I think it's good to track it cause it does add up if you do. I mean, a few sessions a week, that could be an extra hundred TSS that you kind of want to keep track of. So, yeah. Yeah. I also like that. I use our TSS estimator and it, it's not meant for weight training at all, but it actually does a decent job in terms of my rate of perceived exertion and tying that in. And it actually, it's funny, Keegan, and I noticed before recording that it was like, it's really close to the same numbers that I usually have for, for my strength training sessions too. So I do track it because I want to see that because it has a direct impact on my training on the bike. Like if I strength train and I really blow myself up, like that's going to compromise my workout. So I like to be able to see it, but it is purely an estimation because on the bike, we can actually calculate it when you're not on the bike, Mm -hmm. you can't calculate it. So, um, okay. Uh, now let's go into the last question or last rapid fire one from Kyle here. He says, which pedals are best both for road and for mountain biking? Uh, which pedals do we prefer? I guess is the question. How about you, Ivy? You want to go first? Yeah. Uh, I, I use Shimano pedals for, wait, are that wait, they're asking like, is there one that you use interchangeably that you just like use for everything? Yeah. Is that the question? Yep. I, I think so. Yeah. I also think we could probably take it both ways, uh, whichever you want. Um, if you want to answer which one's your favorite road and which one's your favorite MTB that works too. Well, my answer is still Shimano for both. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I do this now, like, uh, I, I have problems switching between like off-road and road pedals, um, like quickly, like it's really weird. Um, like my setup is like correct and it's what I've been writing for years, but it, like, if I need to go, um, if I decide this workout will be better, like on, on the road, like, um, I'll put on road shoes and pedals and everything, like, and try to go do the hard workout, even if I'm like in shape. I can like hurt myself. It's super weird. So I do this now in some circumstances where I just like keep on my like off-road shoes and ride mountain bike yeah. pedals when doing a road workout. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, how are you? Uh, I mean, I use SPD Shimano SPD road and Shimano SPD, the, the regular ones, like the mountain bike ones. I think it's great for, especially for new athletes, the SPD mountain bike ones are great for road because they're a lot easier to get out of. And it's easier just to have one set of pedals in between. But if you ever in a, a group ride racing, don't do the SPD mountain bike cleats. Cause they're so easy to pull out of if you're sprinting and stuff, if you're riding by yourself and you're not doing accelerations, it's fine. But, uh, I've, I've seen it before yeah. it happened and it's, it's no good. So the, the road ones lock you in a little bit more. And especially when you're in a group where if you do bobble, you could take down 10 people. Yeah. Uh, don't do that. But yeah, the mountain bike ones are great for, for road riding. They also have a higher stack. You do it in gravel, right? So you can't pedal through turns as easy with mountain bike pedals on the road bike. So that's something to be wary of as well because they're dual sided. So they're just thicker and you're going to pedal strike earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suggest if you're going to use the same ones, I'd recommend like, maybe looking at like a company's gravel pedal because normally they have more contact on the pedal and they normally it's only one side sometimes. So they give you a little more pedal clearance that way you can still use the same shoes and it's going to feel the same, but 
you're going to have a little better feeling because normally rail pedal is just like a solid big platform. Um, so either like a gravel pedal or maybe even like, sounds a little silly, but maybe like an enduro or trail pedal, they have really big platforms and maybe that's going to feel better on the road. Um, I don't know. I use road pedals on the road bike just cause I'm kind of, I just don't like using mountain bike pedals on the road. It feels weird. I'm totally fine riding my mountain bike on the road with mountain bike pedals, but on the road bike, it has to be road pedals. So <laughs> yeah. Just, right. Isn't it weird? <laughs> a gravel bike too. Gravel bikes fine with mountain bike pedals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, even the gravel bike, I put road pedals bike. on it sometimes. So oh, do you? I race, like oh. I race Belgian waffle ride with road pedals. So I think I just, with it has drop bars, unless it's a cyclocross race, I kind of like road pedals. <laughs> mm. So there it's because you don't walk. And it, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's not, it makes walking not an option. I mean, don't keep yourself away out. This is Keegan logic. Don't do it, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Producer Arian just noticed that not having a front brake also helps, like in Belgium Waffle Ride, when Keegan didn't have that snapped right off. Um, yeah. You just can't slow down. No brake needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keegan logic. Yep. Uh, let's go into Manuel's question. And for those that didn't know, we're now out of the rapid fire stuff. Um, Manuel says, hello guys. And thank you for providing uh, me some company on my long rides. Great product and great help for the community. Uh, we're happy to do it, Manuel. He says, my question is about the mountain bike handlebar, handlebar width. Since the wheels become bigger and the width of the handlebars also increased. Uh, so he's basically... Ever since people have gone from 26 to 27.5 and 29-inch wheels, handlebar width has also gotten wider. Um, so I think that what he's talking about, like, is there a correlation there or everything else? And uh, there's not causation necessarily, but anyways, it's just the way things are going. He says, uh, it is pretty normal to see manufacturers selling bikes with 770 to 780 millimeter bars on them. And what would be, in your opinion, the proper width for cross-country riding for a 175-centimeter, 5-foot-7-inch rider? I'm currently riding 700 millimeter bars, but I'm hesitant. Thank you in advance and five stars. So for, um, what we're going to do, I actually asked this question on Instagram for you, Manuel. Um, we got, uh, we got like thousands of responses for this too, which was crazy. And I then realized that I don't have a way to export all that data from Instagram. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I just took a sample size of 175 and 75 of those people were women as well. So then that way, hopefully we can get a good, uh, it's, it's a relevant sample size at the very least, uh, in this case. So I have a link for the other people on the podcast, uh, the host here so that you can check out that spreadsheet. And there's a second sheet where you can see that, but producer Aaron, um, do you want to put the first, uh, chart up on the screen so we can talk about this and hopefully we can get you some context, Manuel, but basically that there's a lot of theories on like which bar width is best. And people say like, if you dropped under the ground or do a push up in just the natural position, that should be your bar width. Or people say like, it's all a function of your shoulder width, or it's all a function of your height, or it's dependent on the sort of riding you're doing. And there's no real clear, like, this is the bar width you need. Um, but there's some interesting insights and in just in terms of the consensus that we can see with some of the data that we got from just this quick survey. So this first one shows that there's, um, a pretty wide range, but people usually don't fall below 700 and they usually don't fall above, uh, 800, actually more like 780, somewhere around there. So that's usually where people fall. Um, and there is a correlation to people's height, which we'll get into in, in a bit. And also there tends to be a correlation with people's, uh, with, with gender as well, which is interesting with this. I do want to go to the second graph, Aaron, so we can look at this and we'll get into more specifics. So if you look at the height for you being a five, seven rider, 170 centimeters, roughly around there, the average is around 740. 
but a lot of people just get their bars and they are what they are and they don't cut them. And that's just what they run, right? Uh, cutting bars, especially carbon handlebars is really scary. Like thinking of taking a saw to your bars. So I don't blame people for not cutting them. Uh, it's, it's a bit kind of scary there. And you'll see in this data too, that like, um, on the ends of the spectrums, we have a lower sample size. So as a result, you get some outliers, but the trend is there for sure. You start to see that like it, it increases as people get taller. So for a person that's five, seven, 740 would be pretty normal. Keegan, isn't that what you run? I only use seven twenties and I'm about five ten. Um, yep. I'll let you, and I, have so, I have some opinions, but I'll let you. Move <laughs> on. <laughs> Ivy, do you know what you run and uh, what's your height? Yeah, I run seven forties and my height is like five nine ish. Cool. And the average, so that's about 173 centimeters uh, for people listening across the pond. That's like a 700 and so that's, uh, the average there is 750. If you just take out gender and you just like run it all the way across the board. Uh, do you want to go to the next slide here, uh, Aaron? So we can check out this one. This is an interesting one to see. Um, because what this shows is that it's, uh, not just entirely up to, um, the, the gender does have an influence on this. And if you look, men tend to have wider bars. Men tend to have wider shoulders. Yes, they tend to have all of those things, but it's not like a 100% guarantee. Like a lot of people say, they're just like, if you got wide shoulders, you need wide bars, you know, and they say that across the board. So men on average have 758 millimeter wide bars or 760s and 740 seems to be average for female, but average overall is around 750. And then do you want to go to the next one, Aaron? when you look at the disciplines, this is, uh, more, I think applicable in many cases. And this is where we get into cross country has an average of 740 millimeter width trail has an average of 760 and then enduro has an average of 780. But I will point out that enduro world series, multi-time world champion, Richie rude, who has tank shoulders. He is a, he is a tree stump of a man. He's very broad. <laughs> He's a big guy and he runs uh, 740 millimeter bars or seven fifties, depending on the case. So if he's running really narrow bars like that, that's kind of interesting. Also Keegan, your national champion, you run narrower bars than most of the cross country riders that we see as well. And what I found across the board with pro athletes, I kind of looked through the list. And if I saw a pro athlete, I took note of it. Pro athletes on almost every case had narrower bars than, uh, than amateur athletes, which I thought was interesting because pro athletes are usually more like, you're not just running your bars the width that they are. You're actually like making those sort of decisions to trim your bars into the width that you want. Right. And you've probably tested it. So I think that is insightful and I know it's really trendy to go to ultra wide with the bars, but I don't think that it's necessarily needed. Uh, Aaron, can you go to the last, um, one here? And this shows that across the different disciplines that yes, it still goes up, but then it's also different, um, for the, uh, for gender as well. So like average female cross country riders are running 730, whereas males are running 740 and then average males are running 760 with their trail bikes. Uh, and then they're running, it's really not that much of a difference for, for females in that case, they're running seven around seven, just under seven sixties, which is cool. So, and Enduro is really close. Um, but I, I personally think that I have ran too wide of bars in the past and I've also ran too narrow of bars. I think I had like my first bike had like some six eighties or something and they did feel really narrow. Um, also of note, the narrowest bars that we have were five eighties and it was a guy from Denmark and he is six foot four. And he runs five eighties, which is crazy outlier, like across the board, um, which is nuts. Right. Um, but I think I've ran some bars that are too wide. And when you run bars that are too wide, not only do you, can you clip things? And I think that's one of the reasons why Richie runs such narrow bars because he's trying to fit in between narrow gaps and trees with enduro racing. 
but it also can really make the wrist angle bad. If they're too wide, it can really kind of t- tweak your wrists and put them in an uncomfortable position really long. Uh, why do you run the bar with you do Keegan, uh, seven twenty? Um, yeah. So actually, I mean, when I was a young junior, I ran like five eighties and then it slowly got like wider and wider. I ran six eighty for a long time. And then I bumped up to 700 and I was like, yeah, I can maybe try a little bit wider. And I found that 720 is kind of the sweet spot for me. I think, um, I think in general, like wider bars have just gotten trendy. Honestly, I don't know why, like I guarantee you, you're not going to be faster on like a bar that's like that wide. Um, so I would just try it and be like, if it's not making you faster, then why are you doing it? Like, why would you want to carry extra weight? Why would you want to not be able to fit through narrower gaps? And it's just less, it just, I mean, it doesn't do anything better. There's no point in doing it. It all it does is make you slower. So I think you need to think like, why am I using bars this wide? Um, and it's hard because you don't want to like chalk them down and be like, oh, that's too much. So I think you want to do it incrementally, but uh, it's always something to think about, especially if you're racing cross country, it makes it a lot easier to pass people. You can get closer to the stakes. You can get, like, take different lines through trees. Like sometimes there are races and like where you have to fit through trees and it's like yeah. a tight gap and, if you don't feel like you're actually going faster downhill with a 740, then why not run a narrower bar? Um, it just, mm-hmm. for some reason it's gotten trendy. I think by manufacturers, it makes sense to sell them with wide bars. Cause then you just cut them to what you want to cut them to. And then a lot of people don't realize, Oh, I can cut my bars down. So I think it's something to think about. Like, I don't know if it's like a height related thing or shoulder width or whatever it is. Um, as to how wide you should tell your bars. I think it's more just a preference. Um, but definitely is like if you're, five foot, you definitely don't need bars that are seven fifty. Like they're just not doing anything for you. They're just, I'd argue they're making you slower. So I think you need to think about like what your use is. And it's just like having like more travel on a bike doesn't necessarily make you faster. It's the same with bars, like more bar isn't going to make you better. So I think you just need to play around and find what works for you and what you're comfortable with and what is fastest. So The whole point of like wider bars is that if you have wider bars, you can have more leverage and control, but in many cases is leverage and control the actual limiter, right? Like to your point point of diminishing return for sure, I think. Yeah. And if you have a long stem, then that also makes things a little bit weirder as well. Like your leverage, uh, you've introduced like a different leverage ratio because you're making Mm -hmm. your bars further in front of that center steering axis. So then if you have extra wide bars and then you have a long stem, then you're going to feel like, I don't know, (laughs) it'd be very awkward. Um, you have a lot of leverage and probably too much, and it might make things feel really nervous. So it's, it's, there is like a sweet spot, I'm sure, but each one is going to be different. And for those that are like (laughs) angrily yelling right now and typing in, it's all a matter of your shoulder width and just do the push up test. That's not the case. Um, it totally depends on how you ride, how far forward on your bike you ride like Ivy seven forties or what feel comfortable for her. Right. And it's probably a function of how far in front of the bottom bracket she is or how behind it is. And then the head tube angle, the top tube length, all that stuff, it all comes in. Uh, Nate, we mentioned, uh, when Lee first Lee McCormick, uh, when he came and did the, uh, bike clinic with us, and we actually have a YouTube video on that. You can check it out where we actually went through all the stuff that he taught us. I remember his bars looked super weird. I don't know if you remember that, but they had like a unique bend to them. They were like titanium and then everything else. And it was like a different color and it stood out to me. And he was like, Oh, I'm very particular about it. I have somebody custom make these handlebars to have the perfect bend and the perfect everything for my wrists and for my position. And it's exactly what I want. 
and he doesn't have crazy wide bars. He isn't reaching really far out. He doesn't have crazy narrow bars. You know, it's within this same realm of what we're talking about, somewhere between that 700 to 800, but it's just exactly what he wants. So don't be afraid to play with it. Um, most handlebars now also come with cut marks where they'll either be at like centimeter increments. Uh, some of them also will have labels on them, which really makes it handy. So it'll say like 760 is here, 720 is here. So you can cut those. And if you want to cut them, just take them to a bike shop and have them do it because they would be the ones that would be <laughs> the qualified people to be able to cut your handlebars. So. Or at the very least buy a tool and a proper saw blade, like one of those guide tools that you just clamp onto your bar and then it has you cut perfectly. Cause I'll be, I've definitely cut bars without those. And it's a little, gets a little wonky. <laughs> it's a little nerve wracking. Also, some <laughs> just use a bunch of a tape and yeah. It's, yeah. Some of these are responded it. with like 742. I'm really worried about like how you got to that number and how you cut your bars. <laughs> like <laughs> if you just kind of eyeballed it and hacked away, it's a little nerve wracking, but, um, hopefully that helped. And I know roadies, you're probably like, what the heck? It's kind of the same thing that we're talking about with road <laughs> bars though. There are differing widths and differing reasons that you'd want to do it. Instead of dodging trees, it's fitting through packs or more aerodynamic and, there's a lot of things to consider with your bar width and maybe just don't take it for granted. Think of, uh, play around with it if you can and, and see what different things feel like. Like Nate, you run narrower bars than people would suggest, right? On road. Yes. I just love how we went through this whole thing. You never once asked me about my, about my mouth bike handlebars. <laughs> true. I don't even know the width. <laughs> you're like, I don't know. That's whatever stock I ride and it feels fine. Uh, I have of the opinion that it's a little, uh, I don't know you guys are so persnickety about all these things and I don't notice a difference at all. Like I move my hands too, like where I'm holding kind of on my bike and I'm like, Oh my gosh, my handling's gone now. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, but people are very, very particular about it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, road, I go very narrow and that actually I go narrow because it's more comfortable and my neck doesn't hurt as much on long rides. If I go too wide for some reason, it engages my traps too much. And, uh, I've got little skinny traps and, and they just die. <laughs> And one, more aerodynamic. It's true. That's yeah. That's good too. Narrow bars. One way, and it's lighter. It's five grams lighter. That's it. Right. <laughs> well, one one way that you can do it is if you're on a mountain bike and you look at your glove or your grips and where your grips are being worn out. And if you're like, if your hands always feel like they're off the edge of your bars, then maybe you do need wider bars. But if you notice that you're like, always, you have like a couple centimeters to spare on the end of the grip with where you grab, then you probably don't have to go that wide. Right. So, and the easiest way without cutting your bars, like Nate said, is just to grab differently on your handlebars and see how it feels. Um, you can even like slide your brakes and everything in a little bit to test it. Like obviously be wary of trees and stuff, but like you can slide slide your brakes in a little, like a centimeter and like see how that feels. And if it feels good, then you can cut them down. If you're not going to use that extra width. Yep. It's a good tip pro tips. Okay. Last question from Carl. He says, I just finished my first section of sweet spot base because things are still new and exciting. I've had no trouble hitting all my workouts thus far, but I know that that won't always be the case. And he, he brings up a great point that like when the times are good, you know, that like, uh, they don't last forever. Right. So he says, are there, cause eventually everyone is going to experience training interruptions, right? Um, that's what adaptive training is all about and making adjustments for that, which is awesome. So he says, are there things that a newbie like me could start adopting now to ensure I keep my interest and avoid abandoning my plan as things get more difficult down the road? I don't want this to become another new year's resolution that fails after 90 days. Um, really awesome 
uh, question. And thanks, Carl, for sending a question that like has a certain level of um, vulnerability to it too, in the sense that you're admitting a reality that a lot of athletes are like, no, I'm perfectly motivated. I don't need to worry about it. Or, you know, it doesn't matter what comes up. I'll stick to the plan perfectly because life is hard and it doesn't always go like that. So kudos to you for doing that. Um, this one. So let's focus on the motivation side because that will breed the consistency, right? Um, Ivy, what are your thoughts on, on this one? Uh, I think that the source of your motivation can influence your consistency quite a bit. Um, and so, you know, my best advice is to be clear with yourself regarding what matters to you in being a cyclist upfront. Um, and that's kind of hard to, you know, apply that degree of introspective thought sometimes when it's just like just exercise. But, um, you know, if your definition of success is for other people to see you as succeeding. So like winning bike races or like, you know, these very quantifiable like goals on Zwift or like in training or, you know, for, for it to be outwardly recognized as successful, that could be pretty problematic for your long-term or even, or even your short-term motivation. So if your definition of success is to be healthy and get faster and perform well as a result of that, then you won't find a shortage of motivation or consistency. Mm. So, um, yeah, that'll be like a hard, uh, you know, a hard conversation for Carl to have with himself, but I think ultimately will result in longevity in the sport. Yeah. I, I, I put down some notes on here that there's kind of like three main forms of motivation that I find that it's fear, then there's incentive, and then there's also intrinsic motivation, right? So like uh, the the fear side of things is like uh, actually, and I'll, I'll I'll pose a scenario that probably athletes this will resonate with some athletes. Like maybe you're the big dog on campus, so to speak. Like you're really doing well in a group ride or amongst your friends. You're the fast friend or a local race series, or maybe you're a national champion and you've been at the top for a while. So there's a number of different things that can motivate you in that situation. If you've had success and you've been experiencing it for a while, a lot of people struggle with the incentive side of things, right? It's like, well, I've already won. I'm already doing this. And every single week I'm the fastest person on this group ride. So I'm not really incentivized like to, for that in and of itself. But, and then on the intrinsic side of things, when you're kind of up there, motivation can run stale. You start to look for something fresh too. Like you don't truly enjoy it just naturally. So then a lot of the time what happens in those situations is if you've been at the top for a while, fear starts to motivate you. And the fear is don't lose, don't fall off that throne, so to speak. And a lot of athletes feel this and Keegan, you had it going from juniors and doing well, then going to U 23s, then going to that, like you had to accept the fact that you were no longer up on that throne of success. And instead you had to kind of like bite the bullet and be like, okay, it's fine. Um, I'm going to struggle, uh, not get the same results that I got. But I think that sometimes in, on the, on the podcast at times, maybe we've painted fear-based motivation as being too, as being a bad thing that you want to avoid, but I think it can be absolutely beneficial at the same time. Like I hate losing so much and I don't want to suck. Like it, it drives me nuts. I don't want to do it. And, and when I fail, that's super frustrating. And I absolutely admit that I have a fear of losing, Right. But that fear of losing doesn't push me into a bad place. Now you could let it get out of control and it could cause you to compromise all sorts of other priorities in your life and really push yourself into an unhealthy relationship with the sport. And that can go for the same with incentive. That can also go with intrinsic motivation of you just really finding a love for the sport. It can cause a whole lot of damage to other things if you let that run out, you know, run wild. 
But I think that there's probably a healthy balance to be struck between all three to, you know, leverage that when it's useful, the fear side of things of fear of not, you know, performing like, you know, that you can perform or fear of losing and you don't like losing. And you know, that you don't have to lose whatever lose is in the definition that you have, but then also to be incentivized by something for me, it's national championship. Like I even put the medals from the times when I didn't win it yet. And the number plates and I didn't win, they're right in front of my face. Every time I train, right? Like I want to know that that's my goal and I want to know that I was close. So then that way it makes me, it incentivizes me to push even harder. And on the intrinsic side of things, I love the feeling of improvement and success and having some sort of uh, thing to reach for like that. And, and that's something that I just truly enjoy and I enjoy that process. So that's there, but the fear side is totally there too. And I think it's okay. Keegan, do you, you definitely tend to be like, we've talked about before, you just put it in the gear and then you just held it and you didn't let yourself get out of it. I assume that you're pretty hard on yourself in a lot of ways. Like you demand a lot of yourself. So do you, does this resonate with you at all in terms of how you keep motivation? Because on the pro athlete side of things, you probably don't feel like going out and doing five hours every day or going and smashing yourself up against VO two intervals. It's gotta be tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, like for me, I just love, I mean, I love pushing myself. I love riding my bike. I love racing. So I think in general, like training is like, for me, I just enjoy doing it. I think it's a way to, you know, push myself and just further, further myself, I guess. Um, and there's also like, like you said, the incentive thing where like, Oh, like if I train hard, I can win nationals or I can, you know, get this power PR or like going to the Olympics. That's like, uh, an incentive goal. Like that's for 2020, there was no racing. So I was like, training now is going to make me faster next year. And that's really, it was like the motivation behind training. And I think fear like kind of comes out on those really hard interval days or like on race days when you're like, I, I hate losing. I love winning. And that's just, that's who I am. I love competition. So I think the fear comes out, like, I don't want to lose. So I'm going to knock out these last few intervals. And I think in the back of your mind, like, whether you like it or not, that's, that's always there. Um, at least for me, that's like a big motivator is losing. Um, and then also like winning by like winning by more. It's like, I just don't want to win. I want to win by more. And like, I think you can find these like deeper motivators and like everyone thinks it's all like happy and cheerful roses you know like sunshine it's like oh it's just great like i only ride my bike like for the process and it's all like fun um but it's it's not that way and i think sometimes you have to like be real with yourself and be like i why do i do i do this because i like winning and i don't like losing and that's sometimes it's just the harsh reality of it and but that motivates me to train harder and dig deeper for those intervals it's like sometimes it really hurts and you're like i want to pull the pin but don't want to do that because and if then you lose a race a month later, you're like, oh, did I, did I lose because I didn't like tough out those interval sets? And you just don't want to be able to question because you know we all think that like, oh, was that that one day that I like rode four and a half hours instead of five? Or you know, like all those things go through your head. So for me, I like to do all my training. I do it all to the T or more. Like it's so I think you define that balance of uh, like of every of all three of those. I think um, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of find what works for you. So. Nate, how about you? How do you maintain like, uh, going through ebbs and flows of motivation and everything else, like looking at long scale, like building a company and having all of that different focus. And then you also did the cat five to two in a year, like really high, like focus points. Yeah. The horns for that. You can check it out on YouTube. We even did a full recap on it, but what, how do you maintain motivation with all of it? I don't have any problems with motivation, but here's what I say. Carl is <clears throat> this is where people have problems. You will miss a day. 
you'll have a great streak going and then something will happen and you'll miss a day. Just pretend like it never happened and get right back into it. This is one reason why we don't have like a streak or something on trainer road, because it can be so demotivating. You're like, okay, I did it. You know, I worked out all, I hit all my workouts for six weeks or eight weeks. And then you miss a day and you're like, okay, now I have zero. It's like, you feel like you're starting back from nothing, but you're not, you are so much farther ahead. And that day, uh, it might've been better. Cause usually when we miss days, it's because we're either we're sick or busy, which busy usually adds to stress and cortisol. And that, that, that day might be doing you a favor. So, uh, just get back on it and just pretend like you never, it's just like a diet, right? Some people, they have one bad diet day. They're like, my diet is over because I had one bad day. Um, or they try to eat. I, don't, I, I like this idea more. They try to eat a, a certain way. Like this is my new lifestyle, whole foods, that sort of thing. And then I have Popeye's one day and they're like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to have McDonald's. The point, there's no point to it all anymore. Yeah. And then people like go in this, this thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is such a common pattern. And I would not, I would focus on not getting into that pattern. This is a, just what you're going to do in the future. You're going to work out. Of course, there'll be days you miss. You're going to eat healthy. Of course, you're not going to eat whatever optimally the whole time. Uh, and don't, yeah. So don't, don't sweat it and just keep going and it's okay. So as Amber says, it's be kind to yourself. Don't be hard on yourself on those days. Just, just keep going. Yeah. And I also like to have the, have races, having races helps. Yep. For me. Yeah. And even if you, and we've talked about this before, if you don't have a race on your calendar right now, <clears throat> put something on there, put some sort of a uh, thing that you're reaching for, whether it's like white rim trail. Yeah. A KOM, uh, mm. I don't know, just a fun <laughs> ride with your friends, <clears throat> a cool route that you've always wanted to do. I am. My throat is dying. <clears throat> Forgive me. Um, but something like that, that's going to keep you going on the hard days is super important to have. <clears throat> My John's dying. We better end it. I'm dying. It's literally, it needs to stop. There we go. Okay. Thanks everyone for the don't, great podcast. Don't do any VO2 <laughs> like that. <laughs> it makes you not breathe well. Um, man. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us this week. Thanks, Keegan, for joining us. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm sure you're going to get on the bike here after this. So we appreciate you setting aside the time on the podcast. If people want to follow you, how can they do that? Uh, Instagram, uh, Kegels 99, uh, then Facebook, Twitter and Strava, just Keegan Swenson. So everything's always there. Try and update things most of the time. Cool. Send him your pancakes for ratings on Instagram. That's the thing he does. And then if you want to get in touch with the rest of us here, you can follow Ivy, Ivy Audrain on Instagram and tr.nate, uh, Nate on Instagram and myself, Lee Jonathan underscore and trainer road. You should totally follow because we are constantly putting out incredible content. Thanks to the great content team that we have here. Thanks copywriters and designers and everybody else and video editors that all contribute to this. It's awesome. If you want to get faster, it's not just about putting in the work, but also understanding it. And that's why we put so much effort into that. So go to the trainer Row blog, go to our YouTube channel, follow us on all the different social channels that you have. So you can make sure that you get all the content and go sign up for the adaptive training closed beta. If you haven't already, it's super exciting. Um, people are getting faster and using this to really kind of enter into the next wave of training. And it's super exciting. So with all that said, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks everybody. Yes. Bye-bye. Bu